Hey world, welcome back to the Shape of a Star podcast where everything, every everything, well, everything does have a story, but you know, everyone has a story. We just got to shape it so that like, where the star or something like that along those lines. Depends how I say it every day, apparently. But, so on this incarnation of this episode in this orbit, however punny we want to get today, I have on someone that's like super cool as always. And this person just has so much knowledge and honestly, it's just going to be a great conversation. So I'm just going to drag him in now. So everyone, please welcome Jules Sherrod. Hello. 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 So should I introduce myself? Is that what I should be doing right now? Uh, I mean, it would help. So let's just go with that. It would help. Yeah. So let's go to that. My name is Jules. My pronouns are he, him. Um, normally this is like where people would be like, this is what I do, but what I do is complicated. I mean, so I'm going to give like the boilerplate that they tell you, like, you have to figure out what you need to put in your author bio. So I'm going to give that. And then, oh, perfect. yeah. So I am a commercial food photographer and stylist. I am an author. I am a journalist. I am an advocate for disability and trans rights. And I'm a um, contributor to Getty's Images and a staff writer for F-Stoppers. And I love Star Trek. But yeah, I do things. I do lots of things. But that's the main the main areas where I live in at the moment. Yeah. And let me tell you, Jules was one of the most thorough pre-form filler outers that I have had. <laughs> which is wonderful because that means I just get to make up more questions. Yeah, I like homework. I do. <laughs> Oh, okay. I've always, so yeah, it's it's one of these things where I just finished my two week holiday and people are like, well, what are you going to do with your holiday? I'm like, I'm going to learn a new skill. (laughs) Because that's downtime to me. I need to learn something. I need to figure, I'd like to to know how the world works. So anything that allows me, I just, I like, I like homework and it made me not liked as a child, but that's fine. (laughs) Okay. So what was the new skill? You know, it's just like when we talk in other places, like, okay, you did research, what'd you learn? Okay, so I have, I'm, I'm going to be delving into the fiction world soon. And I'm a subscriber, subscriber, yes, that's the word, subscriber to the great courses on Amazon Prime, which is now Wondrium, which is great. And I decided, and every now and then I subject myself to a cishet white dude who thinks he knows everything. And this was how to, the course I wrote was how to write best-selling fiction. Mm-hmm. Oh my, and it was really hard to watch. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> the only thing I learned from it really, well, it wasn't really so much learned. It reinforced how cis white, cishet white men think too highly of themselves. <laughs> I mean, which is, which is fine. I mean, but it it was, I was hoping to gain some, like, Im- some tip to, like, improve, and it's like, oh, no, I know this all, which makes me sound like an ass, because, but <laughs> it, it it was, I mean, it was nice to have the reinforcement, but it, it at the same time, it was like, okay, I know this. At least it was nice to know that I'm on the right track when it comes to the story that I'm shaping at the moment. I completely understand. I say that every time I go, like, I went to BookCon and I went to their writing panels and I was like, who is this for? Like, a fourth grader? Like, okay. 
I was yeah. like, everyone I knew that was there, we all have like writing degrees of some form. Like I have a writing minor. My friends were, had like their mm-hmm. bachelor's in it. Some of them had their master's and I'm like, what are we doing here? Yeah, it, it felt that way. And I don't, it was just weird. And then I got angry because there was like one class that was like how to go about getting published. <gasps> and his querying advice was wrong and so bad. Oh. Ooh. And 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 it's not like it's an old like this was recorded in 2020, so it's not like it's some old before time thing. But his querying advice was like, no, 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 no. I'm sorry, Mister, who has your agent and has been like in the industry for like 15 years, and you think you're an? I mean, sure, you're a bestseller, whatever. I mean, you're a white dude, like. <laughs> that really means nothing to me but yeah the the most shocking thing was just how not good his his advice about how to query was so i learned that there's a lot of bad information out there from so-called experts you know that is good to know warning everyone moral of the day don't listen to experts all the time uh Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) all right so let's get to the scheduled questions Mm -hmm. now uh oh by the way everyone today is july 5th 2022 i always like to put the day in just because if we say something and it's out of context down the road Mm -hmm. you know why so let's start at the beginning how did we meet we met through the pubbers which if people should know from listening to this podcast but it's a group of like writerly friends i suppose is the best way (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to, to explain what the pubbers are. Yeah. So I'm I'm a pubber, even though I'm not on the Patreon, but I'm still a pubber. I'm pretty sure I'm safe to call myself a pubber. I mean, you show up. Yeah, I show up. <laughs> all I <it> write. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You write more than I do. Half the time I'm doing laundry, doing dishes. <laughs> <laughs> on camera sometimes. Oh, yeah, I cleaned that fish tank behind me one episode. Or one right in, like... <laughs> Do whatever you have to do. The, the timed periods helps to sort like, okay, this is what I'm doing in this 20 minutes and I don't have to overthink it. <laughs> right. Which is why I think it's great. So for those who don't know what Puppers is, okay, so go back to episode six and listen to Sarah Nicholas. Sarah Nicholas founded the Puppers kind of on accident. And yeah, so every Wednesday they host a write-in at eight o'clock Eastern time. Yes. And it's twenty. It's ten minutes of talking, twenty minutes of writing, ten minutes of talking, another twenty. Cycle three times. We wrap up. Okay, everyone, we're done. See you next week. And honestly, you do not have to write again. I fold laundry. I do the mm-hmm. most mundane things. And when Sarah's really not the only, be- yeah, the really the only rule is if you do research, you have to share what it is that you learned, That's or just something cool. interesting. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, I've learned the most random things from not even our research, just like, oh, I grew up in Guam a little. Oh, really? I did too. Like, you hear all about it. Go listen to episode six and you hear some of it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of which, I guess I should plug it in now. So Sarah is also a creator as well. Sarah taught me how to use Anchor, which is what I used to record. So queries, qualms, and quirks ask published authors to share their successful query letters and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. Author Sarah Nicholas interviews authors of all genres, about how they got started writing, getting their book deal, and their experiences with publication. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, find it on YouTube, or go to sarahnicholas.com. 
That's Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H to learn more. Also, Sarah had a show called Pub Talk Live, which was a publishing talk show that was every second and fourth Saturday of the month. I miss it. I'm still vying for it to come so back. It's been like a year now. Mm-hmm. So do I. So yeah, that actually leads into my next question is, how did you discover the pepper community? So I've been in like publishing adjacent jobs in the world for a long time. And a friend of mine who is an agent, Sarah interviewed them via her library that she's an event planner for. And um, when I was beginning my own research for my own querying process, I was hunting down interviews of my friend because I specifically wanted to watch videos of him being interviewed because his advice was always salient for me. And I saw the interview that Sarah did of him and a bunch of other agents. And then YouTube is like, well, if you like this video, then you might want to watch this video, which was one of her Pub Talk Live videos and then I at in good autistic fashion I watched every single one of those within a couple days and became an expert on on that and then I was watching like I would always watch queries qualms and not queries qualms quirks sorry that's a different one that we just talked about the write-in I would always like I would watch the write-in and write during it but I never said hi because it takes me a while I would just watch for like six months behind the scenes so like what's the atmosphere how like how what are the rules for the social act interaction in this place so takes true me a long time to, takes me a long time to figure out the rules and so and then once i had the rules i'm like hi long time lurker i'm here <laughs> right and so yeah but it was it was all because of a friend of mine who's an agent like and just the whole process of doing my own research before i started querying oh, that's wonderful actually Jay Lynn, like the person that's always on to, they mm-hmm. are the one who got me into the pupper world because they were like, you know, you are one day going to attempt to get published, even though you're taking very laxadaxel attitude towards it, mm-hmm. but you might want to watch this. And I did learn a lot, even though I knew some of it, but like, I don't know, it's cool to just to hear people's stories and then you get to ask yeah. questions and <laughs> I love interacting. So, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, Hmm? Yeah, I was like, you probably saw me out and about. Yes. <laughs> <Before>. <laughs> I've seen yeah. you a lot. And I was the really funny thing about you. I'm sorry if I'm about to embarrass you. No, do you it. Tell me to stop. Um, is when when Pub Talk Live was a thing, and it's like Lodestar has a question. Lodestar has a question. And you always have the best questions of the guests would come on. And I'd be like, how the hell did he even like just figure out this the, the most obscure questions, but they were always good questions because they were obscure. They weren't the regular questions that people hear a hundred times over and over again. They were unique. They were a little bit off, like just like this little queer, like in the like not quite like unexpected in the best way possible. So. <laughs> No, that's exactly, like, that was the place that really fostered my love of research that wasn't just mm-hmm. creeping on people. Like, if I knew they were coming on, like, people, like, I was dedicated to find out info about these guests. Like, I just stalked their Instagrams. 
like I forgot who it was, but it yeah. was like, hey, by the way, how was that chocolate teapot at this convention you were at that you took a photo of? Yes. And I'm like, wow, like that is some and just from somebody who used to interview people and knows like the research that goes in to be able to 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 answer or to ask questions that are not the same stump speech type questions i that was like that you you stood out and so the first time i saw you on one of the write-ins or something first time i saw you on screen i'm like okay so that is definitely the same person like there was something about your personality that just totally shone through in your questions and i just found it really really interesting so that's my little story about you thank you like (laughs) oh i that's something i take pride in is that like i'm consistent Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know who I am. Oh my god, it was mm-hmm. funny. During grad school, we had to like put our teacher wanted to eliminate bias, so we each were assigned a number at the beginning of the semester, to, and that was our number we put in and stuff. Mm-hmm. But okay, so me being me, I didn't ever because they were very big APA format people because you know psych world. Yeah. So, but I screwed up APA format, so I'd find like pretty photos of the number seventeen and like copy paste it in. <laughs> <laughs> where my name would go <laughs> and like it was about halfway through the semester and I was like oh you didn't figure out it was me yet? and she's like I knew it was you <laughs> she's like but Danny we have to figure out the you have to follow the format for your final project I'm like oh Jesus okay times new Roman 12 font fine <laughs> she's like but it was interesting to see how many different 17s you could find <laughs> so I'm consistent <laughs> me you, you have a brand you have a brand <laughs> we're not here for me though we're here for you jules <laughs> so, sorry i might do th- i might do this often and it's the it's the interviewer in me that cannot turn off so i mean yeah just be prepared i might i oh, might so, turn it back on you often oh no that's fine i love talking obviously <laughs> that's how we're on episode i think this is like episode 52 that doesn't include the hot topics episode mm-hmm. so like so the, I just have to reel myself in from getting like too much praise because again, we'll never get through you. Um, <laughs> so you've mentioned this before, but you're a commercial food photographer. Yes. Which is such a fascinating industry. So I love it. what do you think people would be surprised by the things that you actually have to do? We do not fake food. <laughs> I think that's the biggest thing that once upon a time, fake food was used. And that is like in the Mad Men days when we didn't know how to prepare food for camera. And I got a dog hair on my face. I'm sorry. Hold on. No, so that's fine. No Are you want... talking like Mad yeah. Men days? Like as in the days they were filming the show or the day the, sh- the times the show was the, the time period. So Mad okay. Men days is like the, just the time period. Like that whole golden age of advertisement. Got like it. Food was used. Um, they had, they had, they would use motor oil and stuff for like um, syrup because they didn't know how to, like, well, you want syrup to stay in, a, like, to be viscous, that you have to make it cool before you pour it. Warm syrup is going to make so, but they used to use stuff like motor oil. What? But because, yeah. <laughs> you could not eat the food that was being photographed up until, I think there was a chef 15, 20, when did truth and advertisement laws come in? Because once truth and advertisement laws came in, I'm and they started to get more stringent, um, so you're not allowed to mislead people in advertising. And even if you're shooting like a mint, like 
boot for our website, you're still advertised, like it's still considered advertising. And so you have to shoot what's actually being sold in a way that's not misleading. And lots of people are like, well, what about McDonald's? Those I'm like, that's no way. I'm like, no, you don't understand. They have a food stylist who's being paid $10,000 a day to sit there and find the most perfect patty and cook it to perfection and spend hours finding the perfect lettuce and finding the perfect tomato. And then they spend an hour just putting on the perfect swirl of mustard, like food styling alone is its own other job. And when you have a photographer who knows how to light food and how to like what the proper angle shoot it as and a styler, and I just happen to do both who knows how to cook and prepare food for camera, then magic happens. Um, so I, I think that's the, it's always the food like McDonald's is not misleading because it's fresh. I mean, but it's the exact same ingredients on McDonald's advertisements as what is used when you go in and they prepare your meal in 30 seconds. <laughs> it's just, they don't have the time to make it look pretty. Right. And, oh, I guess I should have done this first. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let me explain what commercial food photography is for people who have no clue what we're talking about. <laughs> My bad world. Okay, so commercial food photography is like what we were just describing. Like you see a McDonald's commercial, that food is prepared. Like a model that's a human, that food is made up. It is it takes hours to yeah. get ready. It's not only like commercials, it's like cookbooks. It's yes, honestly, anywhere yes. you see food. Anywhere you see food. So there's and here's the thing that I think people don't understand. So there's personal service photography and then there's commercial photography. Commercial service photography is like your wedding photographer, your pet photographer, your school portrait photographer, like personal service. You can walk in. Commercial photography is business to business photography. It's basically used to sell a product, whether it's real estate, whether it's food, whether it is um, products like a car or whatever. So if it's, if it's, if it's meant to sell something, whether or like, yeah, cookbook, um, even editorial food, make like food that you will see in like um, Bon Appetit and stuff like that. That's all commercial food photography because it's meant to sell a product. No, that was a very good definition. That makes a lot of more sense than how I would have ever described it. <laughs> also, I don't so, know yeah. why I know this. <laughs> yeah. I maybe, maybe you kind of, absorb the information as you were researching for this episode maybe Who knows? no i learned about no. because like i put the example of like how they steam a piece of cheese on the mm, Winnipeg yes, to make it yes. correct i don't know how i and learned they don't only steam it. it the new our new trick for the patty and the cheese is um a heat gun that you would use for like making paint blister or whatever so a heat gun not a blow dryer you can't use your blow dryer it has to be a heat gun and you have to be careful but yeah, now I use um, heat guns for, for cheese pulls and you have to have freshly grated cheese and you just melt it, pull it, take the picture and it's over and over and over again. And if you do it just right, then you'll get the perfect glisten and the perfect pull. And every cheese has their own, like you kind of learn over time how many seconds to put that heat onto the cheese. And yeah, so there's a lot of tools of the trade the only time something is fake is if it's not the thing or can be fake is if it's the thing that's not being sold. So like say you were selling vodka and you wanted your drink shot. The ice is could be fake because we're not selling the ice. So it could be acrylic ice cubes. But if we were selling the ice, then the ice would have to be the actual ice that's being sold that's photographed. 
Okay. Same with ice creams. If ice cream is in the background, it could be it could be frosting. I think that's what Americans call icing. The stuff you put on cake. Uh, so yeah, it could both. be like Duncan Hines. Okay, so icing. It could be a scoop of icing or mashed potatoes. If it's in the background and not the product being sold. But if the product being sold is the ice cream, then it has to be the ice the actual ice cream that's being sold that's being photographed. No, it's an advertisement. Complete sense, actually. Oh, it's like the breakfast cereals. How there's a giant yes. like breakfast full. No one's eating that much at breakfast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and with like breakfast cereals, like this is a whole thing. There are a team of ten assistants going through literally hundreds of boxes of cereal to find the perfect pieces of cereal to for that piece. Like it's it's a whole job. I was watching. What were we watching the other day? Oh, I need to look on my Twitter. I'm let's let's do like some gray. What's that? Do 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 Jeopardy? Like some background music. Um, oh no, we could just talk oh, while people look. It's um, okay. um, food stylist. So I was watching something. I'm going to look it up to figure out for sure what it was. Um. Oh, sorry. I wish I could remember the show. Um. Damn it. Nope. Maybe if I go to um I think I might have typoed stylist. So the food, I'm just gonna do food style. No. Does this does the show matter? No, it, oh, it does because everybody who's okay. seen it knows it. Um okay. so I'm gonna describe the scene and as I'm as I'm doing this. So there's this beautiful spread of mm-hmm. food out that's just absolutely amazing. And then something happens where like it's an action scene and um, all the food, like this perfectly immaculately styled spread just gets blown away and food is flying everywhere. And like in the blank of like, 10 seconds, not even 10 seconds, all of this food is everywhere. And you have to understand, like, how amazing the spread was. Like, it probably was them it out. the new movie with Sandra Bullock? Yes. Thank you. The Lost Kingdom. Yes. The Lost I saw Kingdom. that movie and I thought the same thing. Every time I watch an action movie, I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, these poor interns have to reset the scene, don't they? Yeah. And the thing when I saw that, okay, so yes, it was a Sandra. Thank you. Thank you. That's what I mean. Like you have to, you, you know it. But when you're a food stylist and a food photographer and somebody, that scene probably took three days to set, making sure that every, like that was immaculately styled and it was blown away in like five seconds. And if they did not get it in that one take, they would have to redo it over and over and over again. And like, I let like the noise I made for real out loud. I like, (laughs) I hate that I knew which scene you meant and what movie too. But yes, that's exactly. And I like, I, oh my God. Like I was like, I like full body visceral reaction to that scene. So yes, thank you for figuring it out. I'm so proud of us. Like I'm proud of us. The fact that you yes. said it that way and I was able to get it like instantly. Mm-hmm. At first when you said a food scene with action vibes, I'm like the Godfather. 
no. And then I was like, oh, it's the Lost Kingdom. Uh, <laughs> by the way, everyone, the food did not explode. By the way, a helicopter appeared and blew it. Yes. So yes. even more ridiculousness. They had to bring in this mm-hmm. giant fan to blow at Sandra Bullock. So the baloney flew at her and like the grapes. Yeah. The lettuce. Oh, God. And that movie was so perfect. And I don't like romances because I'm a romantic and like I don't understand romance at all. Mm-hmm. And normally romance ruins a perfectly good movie for me because a lot of time it doesn't make sense. There's a, there's some, a few exceptions to the rules. Like if I've had like a whole entire series of five seasons for me to understand why those two characters like each other and then, okay, yeah. maybe they can get together. But like in a okay. two hour period, there's not enough time for me to understand what on earth it is that they see in each other just because of how I operate, right? I'm yeah. I'm queer as fuck. Sorry for my language, but I'm like I'm I'm all the acronym or all the letters almost in the rainbow. But um, it there's it was just like I was watching it cuz I'm an old and I'm like is this romancing the stone? This has to be romancing the stone and my partner who's slightly older than me had never seen romancing the stone so he didn't. And so I had to like google halfway through but it's a modern version of romancing the stone which was really gross in the 80s. Like her to watch it now it does not age well. It's not age well at all. But um it just was so well done. And normally I don't like comedies because they punch down instead of punching up and rom- but it was just so well done that I just like it's one of those like, yeah watch it like this is one movie that I would actually absolutely recommend everybody watch <laughs> lol so I just googled romancing the stone because I had no idea what it was the first mm-hmm. thing that pops up is the lost city a remake of <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know that going into watching the lost city but as I'm watching I'm like wow this seems like an awful lot like romancing the stone and I haven't watched Romancing the Stone since I was 10. So maybe I'm not remembering correctly, or eight or something. I was somewhere around that age when it came out. I don't know. I'm an old, is all I know. And it's well done. <laughs> I'm glad you liked that movie, too. I don't think that movie got its due service, no. which is how funny it was. It was great. It was so good. And it was so, like, just the whole role reversal was Channing Tatum, who is not a small dude, being no. the one who needs to be rescued, right? Like, that's the thing that, like, it just totally flipped the whole who needs to be rescued, who's the damsel in distress. It just totally flipped every single trope and stereotype on the head, and it all did it while it was punching down instead of punching up. Yeah, and even who they casted, like, Daniel Radcliffe as the villain, he wasn't, like, imposingly uh, yes. scary. But yeah. let me tell you, he was horrifying. <laughs> mm-hmm. Daniel's really good at that. He Daniel, is. like, he's really good at that. And that's one of the reasons why I love him as an, like, he just, and he takes on all those quirky roles, and he just, he's perfect in them. Always. Yeah. All right, but back to you and food photography. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I know you do photography, and you know how to mm-hmm. style food. Do you have to edit the photo- uh, photographs, or do you yes. send it to someone? For the most part, I edit it. Because I have my style, and that's a lot where the style comes out, right? I don't use Photoshop, so it's all done in life. Okay. Odd exception, sometimes there will be, like, a hair or a crumb that wasn't noticed in the styling scene that has to be, like, quickly healed out. But other than that, I shoot in camera. Like, 95% of the work is done in camera. And then it's just, like, some small, like... Um, Because when you shoot in raw, it's desaturated, and then you have to bring out the colors in, in Lightroom. So I edit in Lightroom. There are some exceptions where 
you would have to save the final image as a TIFF and send it off to like a cookbook editor or a photo editor at a magazine. And then they would have to do some final little tweaking on top of it so that it matches the style of their thing while still retaining my style. But there's always the first little like to make sure that's to my standards. Very rarely do food photographers allow it like the raws to be given for lots of lots of different reasons but there are a few times if they're going to pay like if coca-cola is like i'm gonna give you a hundred thousand dollars you give me the raw files i'll be like sure but let me see them beforehand because if you edit them in a way where you can't even recognize that it's my work i don't want my name attached to it right so it's one of those things where like i need to be able to have the room to be able to just disown those images but you have to pay me for that privilege so nice all right. Uh, so next up, we're still in the photography realm, but okay, you're also a mm -hmm. lifestyle photographer. What yes. does that mean for those who don't know? So it really depends. My lifestyle photography, again, is in the realm of food. So anytime you have people in an image in, and it still works, like you're, so think of like a perfume commercial where they're trying to sell a feeling that I never understand. Like, it's like, whatever. Let's like, Whatever, you know, the blowy, the, the things that don't make sense, except for these lifestyles make sense. So it'll be like a family around a table enjoying a meal or people sitting down at a table outside in a winery with a, holding their glasses of wine and just like giving, even though all my images have a, give a, a time, like a sense of time and place, lifestyle photography really puts you in the lifestyle so you can see what it is that you're expecting. It'd be like, you know, the cliche Instagram images of them, like, in the tent that's all, like, perfectly for glamping. And there's, like, the feet sticking out. And you can see, like, they're looking out at this beautiful, gorgeous vista. That, that's a lifestyle image because, it like, it is invoking a lifestyle. And I just happen to do mine with food involved or drink, like, around food. Okay. <laughs> okay, so... I would ask what makes it interesting for you, but I guess it's the food. <laughs> yeah, it is a food. I love, I love food. Like, yeah, I love food. <laughs> we'll get into that more. So I'll just, I'll leave it there as a little, like, turn the page. I want Basically, to know more. <laughs> turn the page. So you're a fan of cooking since you love yes. food. What inspired mm -hmm. began your love for cooking? So what I was in school, so I grew up in, a household heavy in food cultures. So food was always there. You go and you you have family meal. Like Christmas is like this huge production that takes like two weeks of, like it's meals around and not just my, like every, like anyways, I grew up in plenty submersive in cultures that involve food. And then, um, so it was always around. I always had like, well, I'm going to make myself something whatever, you know, like the normal things when you're like eight years old, I'm going to make myself some mac and cheese or whatever, like the normal stuff that we learn to cook when we're exit or like, uh, I don't know if you do um, toad in a toad in a hole in, in the U S where it's like toast, but the egg is in it and you whatever. And it's by different names everywhere. Yeah. So, you know, the normal kid things that you cook when you're a kid. And then when I was in school um, for grade seven and eight, um, you, everybody, like everybody, regardless of gender, would have to do it for each core master would have to do cooking, sewing, woodworking, 
and metalworking for both those. And then in grade nine, you would get to choose which one of those you, you take as your elective. And it would have you would have to take one of those skills things as your elective back in the day. And so when we got to the home ec, the cooking, and how to like do laundry and other stuff that was part of the home ec life skill stuff, the cooking, I just like I just really enjoyed cooking. It was relaxing. Um, it is a grounding exercise for me, and I just it's me and the food. And it, I think the thing that really appealed to me as a not yet diagnosed autistic kid was that there were methodical steps that had to be followed. And, and I mean, you can deviate, obviously there's like for experience, but when I was first learning, it was the first time that I had an activity where all the steps made sense and I could, it was just me and the food and the steps and I could get lost in me and the food and the steps. And when it was done, I it was always really delicious. I'm like, wow, I'm really good at this. And so it was just one of those things where just the act of cooking, um, I, I, it's healing for me. Nice. No, and I'm sure, <laughs> I feel that no guardian parent is going to stop their youngin from wanting to learn how to cook because great, you mm -hmm. want to do it? <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, a, it was, a, it was especially important in my house. I did not grow up in the best environment. And so also having that skill, I mean, but, but like, it was, it was just, it, it was, it was safety for me. Um, and it was just something that I enjoyed doing and that um, I, I, it was also, there's a lot of science and chemistry and cooking and being able to figure out like once I, cause in the home ex, they would teach us like, this is why you have to add so much baking soda or so much this or that, or like the whole mixture for eggs and whatever to have, have things leaven up and rise and just the whole science behind it too is like, well, here I am, a science nerd. I'm like right into this. <laughs> Give it to me all day long, please, and thank you. <laughs> no, and that makes total sense. Oh, I'm so happy that you found it. All right, but also, would you consider yourself more of a cook or a baker? A cook. Okay. I like baking. I do baking, but I'm 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 more into to cooking than I am in, into baking for lots of reasons. And the reason why I asked that actually is because so my family is full of cooks and bakers, but they mm -hmm. say that people excel at one more than the other. It's a very rare gift. Both. Yeah, I excel at both just because baking is very precise and my brain is perfect for like I like precise, I like precision, I can follow instructions. Like there's this whole concept of labor disruption called malicious compliance where you follow the rules to the steps and kind of like gung up the whole works because the people who make the rules have never actually had to implement them. The thing with us autistics is our default is what people think is malicious compliance and people get frustrated with us for doing exactly what we're told to do. <laughs> That's a whole topic altogether. But I'm really good at malicious compliance. That is my default. It's not me being malicious. You told me to do this. So I'm going to make sure that it is done to the letter. Perfect. Um, and I will not stray from the guidelines that you give me. Cooking took me, I love it now because now it took me a while to learn the rules. And once I was able to learn the rules, then I knew how to experiment with it and play outside and color outside the lines. Yeah. And so I like 
cooking because there's still rules, but I get to color outside with it. Like, it's like, you have to know the rules to break it. And I like cooking because I can, I can, there's more room for experimentation and I can be in a science lab. So it's, it's all like both of them feed different parts of me, my science part and the baking part, which is like, you need, I need to be with me and some steps and just focus with what's in front of me and like be now in the moment, then I go to baking. If I want to have fun with the same thing, then I go to cooking. But I prefer cooking because that's it's less time consuming. It is. Like it honestly <laughs> is. Baking takes forever. Yeah. Or at least yeah. it feels like and it. I prefer to cook. It, well, no, it does. And the thing with baking is, is that like you have to pay attention to the humidity around you and all like there's all those other atmospheric conditions that will cause your baking to not work out. With cooking, it's not as finicky to it, it, it's not as prone to failure. You don't have to watch it to the same degree as you do with your baking. And if you if you're off by a few mill, milliliters of whatever ingredient, you're not going to ruin it. Right. No, like baking now. But yeah. yeah. Okay. So, okay. Moving away from food, you are a massive advocate <laughs> for so many things neurodiversity, gender identity, sexuality, disability, and more. There are many different ways to advocate. What would your primary way be? You're an American, so you're not going to be familiar with the word keener. Keener is like, someone who's like a go-getter kind of interspersed with brown nosing, but not really. I mean, we just, we're go-getters, I suppose, is a good way to say what a keener is. So I'm a keener. I don't do anything half-assed. So, like, I have worked on national political campaigns and helped elect national leaders in Canada and enact laws and change policies and stuff, um... I worked with local school boards to make sure that um, gender neutral washrooms were put in place and change the whole and making sure pronouns were being used before it became part of. So I'm, I, I make changes to laws. <laughs> I mean, is, and policies and like, I've been on diversity inclusion committees and I mean, so that's how I, like I, I'm on the ground, get involved and make change where I can. Um, and so that's how I do my act. And then I also like, you know, there's this tradition for those of you who are not queer, who are listening, where elder queers like mentor younger queers and take them under our wing and kind of help them navigate a world that um, is out to get them, to be honest. And that's another thing I do is I work with queer youth and make sure that they have at least one person in their life who is safe and will help them navigate um, a really not friendly world. Right. Uh, so for those who don't understand what keener is, because you're stateside like me, fun <laughs> fact though, everyone, I knew what a keener was, but I knew like the old ass definition of it, which is actually the first thing that pops up on Dick Oxford dictionary.com. Anyway, mm -hmm. so here's what it is. The definition I knew is a person who wails or sings in grief for at a funeral so no, see that's not it, yeah. Keener yeah. is a Canadianism. Keener is like somebody. No, no, no. Who because is the way like you're really saying keen, it is yeah. the informal version. Apparently, it says like giant informal. A person who's extremely eager, zealous, or enthusiastic. 
Yeah, and that's not informal. That's an, If you were to go into the Canadian English Dictionary, keener is an actual word in Canadian English that is not informal. It is a word. It's an everyday word that we use in Canada. Well, that's what informal usually means. Yeah. It's like everyday words. Informal and, and normally means slang in, in dictionary definitions. And so it's, it's just, yeah. But keener is a word that we use up here that um, is really difficult for me to translate sometimes. <laughs> Well, I don't know, because, like, if it sounds like to me, so the, like, traditional, like, old-ass definition mm-hmm. of keener is someone wailing or singing, like, that's a form of advocacy, too. Mm-hmm. It's not the purpose of what they were doing back then, but, like, it's still, yeah. if someone's wailing or singing at you, you're going to pay attention. So that is, can be advocate It could be, yeah. So, yeah, I just, I, I, I don't know how to do things half-assed is part of my problem. And so if I'm like, I'm, if when I set my mind to do something, I'm all in. And so I put myself in, yeah, I've politics and places where, where my experience and um, my mini skills can be put to use to make sure that queer kids coming up now don't have to experience what I experienced growing up. Yep. Uh, Yeah. Perfect way to say it. And not just queer kids. It's more like anything. Yeah. Anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is because anything that like there's anything that benefits those who are the most marginalized benefits everybody. Right. So my like goal is like if I can help one person not unalive themselves because the world is better for them, or because I was there for them, then that's great. The fact that's gonna help other people in the in the long run is is cool but i'm 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 for making sure that lessen the damage and and stop the 50 percent of queer kids who want to unalive themselves nice and so you've mentioned this a lot already in the show Mm -hmm. but we're officially going to dive into it you're in canada (laughs) yes (laughs) okay so most of my audience is American, and I personally feel that America knows nothing about Canada. So mm. my first question about that is, what do you think is a huge misconception people have of Canada? We don't say a boot. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is something people, like, assume. Um, and that's a joke. So uh, I was once interviewing an American. I'm not going to say who. But, um, and every time I would say a boat, they would count out loud and I didn't know what they were doing. And like after the ninth time, I'm like, why are you counting? And they're like, Oh, I just find it really cute. Every time you say a boot, I'm like, but I'm not saying a boot. I'm saying a boat. <laughs> and that's rude that you are like totally obsessing over my about. So if you're on the Atlantic coast and like there's parts of like Newfoundland and Nova Scotia where they do say a, a boot, the most of us, though, we say about. I mean, it's like a boat is exaggerating how we say about, but yeah. it is a boat. We say a boat in Canada. We don't say a boot. So that would be the one thing. It's not a tundra, cool tundra in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> That's another good one. I say this half jokingly. So I live in the Hawaii of Canada. It rarely snows. It what? rarely gets to freezing temperatures because oh. we have rain. We're in a temporal rainforest. We, our climate where I live is um, a temperate Mediterranean climate. 
and it's why we call it we have the where i live specifically has the highest mean temperatures in all of canada and it's just the pacific wet coast is like that for a reason i was about to say it's twilight town right (laughs) yeah so it's we're above twilight town but the thing about this is you would think, and this is what I'm your your question, like what would Americans not know? And you would think that somebody coming up from Seattle, which is like an hour south from us, from yeah, the, it's not far. They would know, they would they they would they would assume coming to here no special, nothing special. Hockey team coming up from Seattle to play the local team in April. Got off the bus wearing parkas and snow pants from Seattle because they are coming to Canada. And weather doesn't know man-made borders. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not lying. I'm not exaggerating. They came off from Seattle off the. <laughs> Sorry, but they took a bus, right? Yes. So they had to drive through it. It wasn't like they flew it, and they were like in an airlocked <laughs> container. Mm-hmm. Yes. Also, wow. All right. So people. we're not we're not a tundra. We have we have we have lots of temperatures and not everywhere gets snow. Um most of the stereotypes about Canada are not stereotypes, they're facts. Oh, okay. So, um also we're not polite, we're just a very passively aggressive society. That's <laughs> Okay. I mean, so Canadians are taught not to rock the boat. Back to my boats. Now I'm going to hear it all the time. Um, But we, I mean, we we can be a little bit arrogant and we, we do apologize all the time. I mean, the the if if someone was to bump into me, I would apologize for being in their way. I would be sorry, and that's I mean that is an actual true thing that happens. There's a thing called a Canadian, um, not roadblock. There's anyways. It's basically no you go into traffic, no you go into traffic, no you go, no you go, and this is a thing that happens all the time. Traffic gets paused. As there's like this enter, no, you let you you keep going. No, no, I'm letting you in because it's oh, a long line. That's what you mean? Okay, I'm thinking you mean like go step in front of the car. No, no. <laughs> see, we're like we're very. If so, if we see somebody who's wanting to turn into traffic, they will stop, and it they will like. We have so many like traffic always is like because we let people into traffic and there will be literally 30 seconds at least of the two people, the drivers waiting. No, no, you keep going. No, no, I've stopped. You can go in. This is a thing that happens. No, but that's so so funny that like, okay, so my cultural context is go, go jump in front of that car. And yours is no, my letting each other go happily. Yes. So, and that's, so my partner is American. And he's been in Canada now eight years. Okay. And he still, he still is not, like, there's still a thing where we're driving that still blows his freaking mind that we will, like, hold up traffic to let people in so that they can get in and get go on about their day. Um, so, I mean, we're polite, but we're also very passive-aggressive. I mean, like, we use the word buddy to not mean buddy. Like, we have, like, if someone calls you bud, you're not really their bud. You better watch out because they are, 
it's like it's like it's a, probably the the equivalent to the southern bless your heart. So you know that makes sense because of Wolverine. <laughs> like well, the character of Wolverine yes, is yeah, from Canada, yeah. and he's always saying yeah. "bub," which is not the same as "bud." Yeah, but like it's close yeah. enough. It's, it, yeah, it's it's based off of that that thing that we do in Canada. If someone's called "buddy," can you have to go context? But if someone's calling you "bud," you're not their bud. They are they are they are giving you a what for, um, and so. But yeah, I think that's. I mean. Healthcare is not crap. That's a, I mean, um, we are not some utopia. We have our problems. Um, I mean, things are better in some ways, but also like, it's not like there's all these people who are like, well, if things get bad here, I'm going to move to Canada. I'm like, no, (laughs) like Canada's not, I mean, American exceptionalism is a thing, and can, there's also a version of Canadian exceptionalism. Like, anytime something horrible happens in the U.S., there's always some white Canadian who's like, oh, I'm so thankful I live in Canada. Oh, really? So you're gonna you're saying that on the backs of all the dead bodies of kids that we're finding in unmarked graves across the country because of what we did to Indigenous peoples? Like, screw you. You're so glad you live in Canada, Mr. White person. <laughs> like, so, and I'm saying this as a white person, my people are gross. And like, and, um, so we have, we are arrogant when it comes to, well, I'm so glad I don't live in the U S screw you because I have all the people of color, especially indigenous people. They're not lucky. They're, you no, no, like we need to check ourselves. And so I think that's the, that's that's the thing that you need to know about Canadians is that we may we are polite. We don't lock our doors. I mean, we live. We look. We're we're nice, but we are also our niceness comes at the expense of most white people in Canada don't look and don't pay attention. Like they walk through life like completely ignoring the stuff that's happening in their own backyard. That's not just Canada. But hold up, you don't lock your doors? Mm, no. In cities, you do, but 50% of Canadians do not live in a city. Um, A city, I mean, a big city, big city in Canada is is 30,000 or 300,000 people. We only have a couple, yeah, we only have a couple metropolis areas that have over a million people in it. Uh, um, Most, like I grew up in a town of 1,200. The town that I live in, right? Yeah, I grew up in a town of 1,200. My high school was grade 8 to 12, 300 students. Not even 300 students. There was 40 people in my graduating class. We know everybody where I grew up. Where I live right now in Duncan is like the Cowichan Valley is considered a medium-sized area because there's 80,000 people. When I tell Americans that, they're like, oh, my God, that's a small town. I'm like, no, that's a lot of people. Like, 80,000 people is a lot of people in my big, huge geographic area. Like, you don't even understand. Like, Victoria, the capital of British Columbia, has 40,000 or 400,000 people. That's a big city. Like, <laughs> we have Toronto and we have Vancouver are the only places over 1 million people in Canada. So, I mean, yeah. We have the whole entire population of California is in Canada. So... No, I was just looking it up. Yeah, in 2022, yeah. Canada has 33 million. Meanwhile, yeah. America has 331 yeah. million. Yeah. So, I mean, everything's laid back. We all know each other. Something horrible happens in one part of Canada. Like, we're a small... Canada's one big small town. And if something horrible happens in one part of... Like, so... 
a few years ago, a singer called Gord Downey, who was the leader of Tragically Hip, he died. Oh, and I might cry talking about this. Gord Downey is Canada. And it doesn't matter how old you are, you know the Tragically Hip and you know Gord Downey. And we knew he was dying. And for one year as a country, we prepared for his death. We had a, a wake, like a couple months before he died, the Tragically Hip performed a concert for all of Canada so that we could come together. Like there was every single bar in Canada was filled with people singing along. We were holding each other. We were crying each other as a whole entire freaking country. We came together to celebrate the life of Gord while he was still alive. And then when he died, even though we knew it coming, we spent a week crying and like basically nothing happened in Canada for a week because we were all warning. So that's Canada. <laughs> I mean, but we're also um, white colonists. So that's also Canada. It's that whole, we're very nice. We are very, very nice. But we're also dicks, is what you need to know about Canada. <laughs> All right. So do you believe that Canadian cartoons are superior? Yes. Yes. And I don't it. watch a lot of cartoons, but they are. I mean, it's all, I, part of it has to do with our humor. I mean, our humor is more closer to British humor than it is American humor. And there's we're just quirky. Canadians are weird. And I'm going to say that. And I'm we're, we wear our weirdness. Like, we don't shy away from the fact that we're weird. And it's reflected in our cartoons. There's something just a little... Like, my partner, he describes... Like, our cultures are pretty similar, except for there's just something just that's just a little bit off about Canada. And our cartoons are the same way. Like, they're, they're American. There's just something that's just a little bit off that that is a result of what it is to be Canadian. Because I like to talk to people about this all the time because Brace Face was a great cartoon that was Canadian. Mm -hmm. Total Drama is like the best cartoon of all time mm -hmm. and the entire series, and that is based in Saskatchewan or yeah. based off an island off of Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. Look. No, there's no islands because Saskatchewan's in the prairies. Right. Saskatchewan's like landlocked. So there could be an island and a lake in Saskatchewan, but... <laughs> and that's the point. And I think that's yeah, part of like yeah. the humor. It's just like, guys, this place doesn't exist. Don't try and make it exist. But we're yeah. going with it. But yeah, so. yeah, total drama, everyone. Go watch it. Not sponsored, but it's great. Um, <laughs> and there's like a billion seasons. And it just builds and builds and builds off each other. But, okay. In the preform that you said... Mm -hmm. Okay, in the preform, you said to get you talking, to mention this certain thing. So, pretext everyone. I had to take a world history class when I was in college that was all about food trade created the world that we know today. And I hated it, and I had to examine paintings and take note of what food was there and where it was originated from. The only reason I got through it is because my history major friend like saved me during the project. I couldn't do it. But it was one of the classes that I skipped the most, and I believe you can make this a way more fascinating topic than that entire class. So my question to you is, how has violence and colonialization impacted North American food? Well, anywhere there's a diaspora of people who are not white Western Europeans, they are in North America. We'll use, yeah, America, like United States and Canada because war, partition, um, or they are a persecuted group and they've had to come to North America to free that. <clears throat> they come and they bring their food. A lot of the food that ends up coming and being accepted here is food that came from their country 
and was created because of colonization of Western forces and imperialism in that country. A really good example I'm going to use is Fa. Everyone loves Fa. There was recently a cookbook came out and it makes me really angry. <laughs> like it take you that wrote in it like an actual fact that Fa originated because of it tells the love story between two lovers and whatever royalty some king loves some princess and the way that the flavors play off of each other is why we have fa no 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 fa exists because the french people came to Vietnam. what will what is now vietnam then indochina and they're like we hate your food where are your cows <laughs> we hate we hate your food where are your cows? We are going to bring some cows in from France and you're going to make us a broth that we can stomach that is kind of based on Chinese cuisine, but also like it's a mix between ch Chinese, well, parts of so Chinese cuisine is this whole thing altogether, but you know, the part of China that is borders with Vietnam. So we're going to take these cuisines and you're going to make us a soup that we can stomach as colonizers here over time because beef is not is not endemic to like chicken and pork are the primary pork proteins in vietnam they don't even use dairy okay. uh, or um tofu except for vietnamese people from chinese descent it really depends on if you have chinese descent or not when it comes to vietnamese food but if we're talking about pho specifically beef is not beef is a relatively it was introduced to that area in the 1800s. So really, really new. And um, so yeah, the French are like, make us a soup that we like. Over time, Vietnamese people became, be, began to like the soup. And so they still, like, it's, they're still very important to them. Otherwise, when they came on boats um, during the Vietnamese War, thank you, America, um, and settled here, I mean, they wouldn't have brought pho if they did not enjoy grow to love it themselves. I mean, Vietnamese people are very, but it's not because of a love story. It's because French people came in and said, hey, where's our beef? <laughs> Give us our beef and make us a soup. Um, and then it came to North America really, like, relatively recently, the late 70s, early 80s, because of the Vietnam, the war in Vietnam um, and because of imperial American imperial forces is why it originally or made its way to America. It's just now coming to Canada because we didn't have the same amount of Vietnamese refugees as America got. That's a whole other story. Um, um, things like tikka masala is not an Indian dish. Tikka masala was invented by white British people. But everyone, and tikka masala is one of those things like saying tai chi or chai tea. That's like saying tea tea. Tikka means to marinate, masala means spice. So you're basically just saying, like you're talking about a cooking technique when you say tikka masala which is huh. not i mean there are things that are tikka masalas but like saying tikka masala is like saying tt it's it's the same it's thing saying spiced <laughs> marinade yeah 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 you're saying spiced marinade well all most indian foods that have curry is not a flavor curry is a method of cooking it means to cook in gravy is what curry is. you know i recently learned that and it was because of the new pokemon game <laughs> yeah, so curry is a, is a cooking method. There is a curry leaf. 
that has been Mr. Like Miss Like the colonizers think is curry, um, but curry is not the same as curry. Curry is a cooking method. It means to cook in gravy, and and most curries are a tikka masala. So like it's just because most curries are marinated in a masala before you cook it in to make the curry the broth the gravy that is in the food um there's a punjabi restaurant here in town that i absolutely love and they and i they have like so this this chana dish which is chickpea that we have it's not a it's like it's not a curry it's a dry dish and so it, like but it's still spice it still has a masala because it's indian food and so i'm wondering like how many people who are white and who do not know about Punjabi cooking or Indian cooking in general, order this thinking that they're going to get a non-masala dish because they think mas like masala and curry are the same thing and that curry spice is a thing. And like, wait a minute, why is there why is there spice on my food? <laughs> why you put spice here that's not salt and pepper? Take it away. Um, so yeah, it's just like a lot of the foods that we have in North America that are not white western european foods and i'm specifying white western here is another story i'm going to talk about matzo balls <laughs> because on one side of my family i'm jewish and we came here to north america because of partition like the country where my forebearers come from doesn't even exist anymore thank you colonization and whatever so that's the whole story anyways matzo balls matzo is a really important part of passover and you have to make it within like a time. You have 18 minutes to make the matzah. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it's not kosher anymore and you have to start yep. over. So before industrialization, matzah was very difficult to make and it was not, you had to come from means to be able to have matzah um, in the before times, before industrialization. And during before industrialization, like Eastern European didn't have borders, like Western European, and it was very multicultural and nomadic, and people just roamed wherever all over Western European, Western Europe, or Eastern Europe, sorry, like where Poland and Ukraine, like all those things, they were, it was just people going wherever they wanted to be, very multicultural, we all got along until Western imperialism came along. Industrialization happened, and then matzah was able to be made in an, in the factories and being able to do the time, and um, matzah balls were created as a result. It's like, well, now we have unfettered access to matzah. We don't have to go to a special bakery. Anybody can enjoy it now. Matzah balls were created. The story goes that m Jewish people invented matzah balls so they would fit in with their neighbors and work into their culture and that's not how it happened at all other people who are not jews came and said hey we like your food we want to share in your food and they took the matzo balls from the jewish people because they like what the jewish people are doing it wasn't a, it, but imperialism means that no we can't we can't it can't be us who want something from the other the other is trying to fit into us um, but, but that's not the case. It's it's the we were I've never not heard that version. Well, that's that's what we're, that's 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 the truth. It no, no, no. I meant I knew the show. truth. I never heard the oh. other version. <laughs> oh yeah, that's the other version where 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 is Jewish people created matzo balls to fit in with all the dumpling culture. It's like no, we did it's not. not even made Sorry. Mm -hmm. 
I was like, it's not even like I wouldn't even call it similar types of food. Like no. when I eat yeah, it. because there's there's lots of po- other Polish and Ukrainian dumplings are a very important part of Polish and Ukrainian food. And colonizers think, well, no, obviously they would have to have want to fit in with the Polish and the Ukrainian dumpling culture. And like, no, that's not, no, we were not fitting in or trying to fit in. We already fit in. We were already a fabric of the society. Matzo balls just were created because we could finally have unfettered access to matzos. And we have our neighbors over for food like you do in a culture. And they're like, oh, we like your, this thing that you have here in your soup. Can we have the recipe? Sure, here's the recipe. Like, it's that simple. But yeah, people think that we created matzo balls to fit in with, with dumpling culture. Nope. No, um, but it's like that with every food that um, when you're like most food is appropriated instead of appreciated. And I write about this actually in my book is that um, growing up as a white person, I had unfettered access to Indian food, to Japanese food, to Chinese, well, Canadian Chinese food. And that's a whole other thing altogether. I'm going to specify Canadian Chinese food, which is Chinese food, but it's not Chinese food, right? It's still, but it's it's, it's a result of colonization. It was like, what can we yeah. make with what's available to us? It's still Chinese. It's invented by Chinese, but it is the result of of colonization and, and not having and access just... and immigration and not having um, access to traditional culturally appropriate foods. They did what they did with what they had, um, but it is very different. Like. Then I'm and I'm preaching to you here who knows this, but to other people, they don't understand how different American and Canadian Chinese food is to the billions of different like Chinese food is not one thing. Canadian Chinese food is one thing. American Chinese food is one thing. You go to China, you're gonna have different food depending on where you go. Duh. Um, but it, it's um I had unfettered access to all these foods everywhere I went. And people go out to wrestle. Oh, we're gonna have exotic food tonight. We're gonna we're gonna eat the other food tonight, while the other is being teased for coming to school smelling like their food. And that's that's the trauma. That, that's the whole thing. Is like we we want to take it. And we want to rename it, and we want to to curtail it and and put rules around it. But we're going to enjoy it and look at us being so elevated that we're eating the other food. Look at us. Look at us great white people doing this thing. Um, and the, the most, the thing that I think most when it comes to North America is, especially in Canada, and I live on unceded um, Indigenous territory. There's no treaties. There's no nothing. It's stolen land. And on the stolen land, I can, I mean, there's still some foods I cannot access that are culturally appropriate because of, um, I live in a food desert-ish. But, I mean, indigenous people here, they still cannot, their food cultures are still criminalized to this day in Canada. That is, that is, like, they still cannot hunt and fish and live off the land in ways that are culturally appropriate. And um, they're, yeah, so... It's still ongoing, even here in in North America. Um, soul food in the United States is another good example. People, and it up and it's only been a cool thing to partake in 
within like 10 years with gentrification, it's like all of a sudden it's cool to eat black people's food. Well, that food you're eating is the result of enslaved people having to live off of literal scraps and trying to figure out how to create a cuisine to sustain them while they are um, being beaten and exploited and yeah. stolen. Mm-hmm. So that's, and that's everywhere. Like everywhere there is a diaspora of people, there is that history of white people coming along and screwing up their, their ability to not only eat their culturally appropriate foods, but to be able to, but then they take it for themselves and be like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have this for me, but you cannot have it for yourself. And we're going to make your life very difficult in the process. All right. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And no, yeah, I just didn't know all these angles. Like I said, like I only knew the truth about matzah, uh, but I attribute that to growing up in a very Jewish area. But mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my god, like I knew I knew tons of Yiddish, and my mom's side's Italian, so I thought half the Italian and Yiddish words I knew were just common English until I moved. And then people are like, "What are you saying?" I was like, "You don't know what the schmuck is." Like, okay, whatever. Yeah, but I that's uh, yeah I that as well. But it's also and that's how yeah. There's, I was reading, um, Jewish enclaves are very, because of how spread apart Canada is, I mean, Jewish people are, are very, they're like in Montreal, some in Toronto, a handful in Victoria, like they're, they're very, they're not spread out, like you can't find a lot of Jewish people throughout Canada. Mm-hmm. All right, so next up on the questions is... Another fascinating thing that you've done is that you said that you were part of an informal study that literally changed how Canada spoke or speaks and that you made national headlines for it. So tell us about that. So it's not so much that it changed. So this this goes back to the, to the last thing that I didn't want to spoil. So when my partner and I got together, I mean, we speak English. We speak, we share a language. Most of you understand me for the most part. I mean, you've had to search one thing. But my my partner, nope. like I would say things, like he'd ask me, like, "Do you mind if I do this?" And I would say to him, "Fill your boots," and he would look at me like, "What you want me to do? What to your to my boots? Fill your boots." And this keeps happening, and I'd be like, "Well, go get the tea towel." Excuse me, the what now? Um, huge language barrier between my partner and I. All these words. And so I, I'm like, you, how do you not know these words? Like this, I'm speaking English. We are speaking the same language here. Why do you not understand me? And it's the same thing with the Yiddish words, right? Like, what do you mean you don't know what schmuck means? Everyone knows what schmuck means. Like, excuse me. Um, what do you mean you don't know what tush is? Like, a tush is another one that people, is not ubiquitous, apparently. And so I decided. Wait, is Yiddish? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I I learned it was Yiddish re- recently. I didn't know. I've like I've been using it all my life because a friend of mine who is also Jewish wrote a book that is very, very Jewish, and he has footnotes describing some of the Yiddish words. And push was one of the words that he footnote. I'm like, what do you mean this is Yiddish? Like, who doesn't know what tush means? Does that really need a footnote? Anyways. But all of our conversations needed footnotes. And we, I constantly had to stop and be like, what do you mean you don't know this? So I decided that I was going to put out a survey to the world with 50 Canadianisms. And I um, asked people to identify if they were Canadian and where they lived in Canada. If they were American 
or if they lived in one of the Commonwealth countries. And the Commonwealth is like every country that was once part of the British Empire. We have a Commonwealth that we kind of like, whatever. That's a whole other colonial thing. To see what, like, how what, if they were Canadianisms, regionalisms, or Americans just being daft and not understanding what it is the rest of the English world is saying. And because America does some real thing, weird things like dropping the U from color, as an example. Like, so I had the words and I asked people to identify where they lived and the degree to which they understood or have heard, like, do you understand this word? If so, do you use it every day or do you just know it because of whatever? And in the end, I managed to identify 33 of those 50 that Americans had absolutely no idea what I was going on about. They were like, what is this word? People from the Commonwealth were able to like, I know what that is. I know what a parkade is. I know what this is. I know what that is. And um, so I, I did a survey. I posted it on when I was writing for Geek Dad. And so Geek Dad did it. And then all of the Canadian news is like, look at this Canadian right on American webs. Because Canada, another stereotype, is we love to see one of our own succeed in an American-dominated market. So they are like, oh my god, here's the thing about Canadian English on American website. This needs to be national news. And I spent two weeks explaining my methodology or whatever. Um, and during, um, during the survey, because we have a Canadianisms dictionary and a Canadian English dictionary... And as I was doing the survey, UBC, University of British Columbia, which is like a good university, yeah. um, the, their linguistics department saw my survey and, there, and I had identified some words that um, were not yet in the Canadian dictionary that were planning to be added to the updated dictionary, plus some other words that they decided, huh, interesting, we we need to investigate this further to see if we also need to include these words into the Canadian English Dictionary. Um, and they gave me praise. And that was like all the national he news headlines. I didn't care about that because whatever, it's silly. I'm going to talk about what poutine is and what, what a bunny hug is and what a toque is and all this other stuff. Um, and these are all words that you're like, what is he going on about? What does fill your boots mean? Um, all this other stuff that we say in every day, we all know what it means. Um, like fill your boots means knocks your socks off. Whatever floats oh. your boat, whatever creams your coffee, go fill your boots. Okay. Knock your socks off. <laughs> um, so, so, and so they, the thing that the UBC that was the best praise was like that I, my, it was completely informal and I used my formal education um, to like, I, I have my degree in psychology and, and another one in marketing. And you have to learn how to do research when you're doing those degrees. So I, I learned, I used my background in research to be able to, it was as scientific as I could make it with, with a self-selecting, um, like people taking the quiz. And then like, despite like it was informal, but it was really well done. And so we're going to be using the survey to update the dictionary. So, I mean, that was... The cool thing because i don't care about the news i care about the fact that i made i helped change the dictionary <laughs> that's that's where the that's where i get my gold star nice i know that is still super cool like you changed the world all right so next up on the question list is that you kind of hosted a show similar to this one that was called like the geek pleasures radio show 
Geeky pleasures, yes. Geeky. Oh, whoops, my bad. Geeky. Yeah. Geeky. Okay, yes. so where would people have listened to it? On the radio. Um, so it would be it would broadcast live on internet radio, and then it was made available as a podcast after it would broadcast live. And it would be like a live chat. And I mean, this was like 2008 is when I started it. So even like long before, like before YouTube and before podcasting, yeah, before thing, like, yeah, like old school, old school. And then, yeah, then it would be available as a podcast afterwards. Awesome. Uh, okay. And any cool guests that were on that you can remember? Lots. I mean, all of them were cool. Um, Okay, sorry, this is gonna be gross. And this is another thing that Canadians do not like to do. Like Rital is bad to to like name drop and stuff like that. Because we don't have celebrity culture in Canada. So How? but this was okay, never mind. Yeah. Go on. yeah. No, we can talk about it. We don't have celebrity culture is not a thing here. People are people. Actors do jobs. Everyone has a job. Like the, the, yeah. We don't have celebrity culture. We don't have tabloids. We don't have that. Um and so, but, I mean, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, growing up on Star Trek, and um, I can tell you everything there is to know ever about Star Trek. And my very first guest on my show was Will Wheaton. And that was a big deal, because Will and I are about the same age. And um, Wesley Crusher, the character, I mean, I was Wesley Crusher growing up. I was telling adults, they were, like, I, I was annoying. I wasn't annoying, I'm autistic. Like, please. Please, but whatever. But I was, I mean, yeah. Um, I was always, like, saying adults and rolling my heads because they were not as smart as me, and I knew it. Um, and we have, we're both geeks and whatever. So that was a big deal because when I was little and seeing Wesley Crusher on screen, that was important to me as a weird old little kid. Um, and so having him as my first guest, guest was was really cool and being able to like geek out with a fellow geek that you have you literally grew up with i mean he's four years older than we, we literally grew up together our kids age like we are our lives grew very similarly and so that was that was really fun for me um being able to interview one of the doctors who was was a fun interview um being able to interview Richard Hatch before he died for people who he was on both Battlestar Galacticas. He was Apollo in the original. And then I can't remember his batty ass evil character in the new one, but he was, he was really nice. And I always forget sometimes that he's dead. <laughs> that makes me sad when I think of it because he was genuinely one of the nicest people I have ever interviewed. Um, and then God, I, I think one of my favorites also was interviewing John Scalsey, who is my favorite science fiction author, and being able to geek out with him and pick his brain about whatever. Um, and there's lots more, but those are the, I think those four are my favorites out of all the ones that I got to do. No, that's super cool, though. So, yeah. Now I don't hear you. Hold on. Now that is so weird. Like, what is going on? Oh, now uh, I hear you. Oh, okay. Here we go. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, no, I was just saying, that's super cool. You got to meet your idols, and you had, I would say, legitimate guests on. Not that my guests aren't legitimate. Uh, 
But, you know, I mean, with more common notoriety, I will say, than some of my people who are just like, hey, buddies, you want to come on and say how cool you are? Like, So here's the thing, though. With a pre- your, our shows are not all that different. Because my show, because we don't have geeks... We don't have geek culture here, or like celebrity culture. So they were never coming on as a celebrity or to pimp something. They were coming on, so it was two geeks sitting down, having a cup of coffee and chatting like friends do. And it allowed them to have an hour to two hours to just geek out about whatever. They didn't have to be on. They weren't there to promote anything. They were just there to be regular human people and to... And my aim was to allow them to have that space, because I, I don't have idols. I don't look up to people that i mean again because we don't have i mean they're just people doing a job and so it was it allowed them to have time to be a human instead of being larger than life and having to perform and so that was what i like because most most of the time they were on performing and i got to ask them questions and they loved it it was like you it was one of the reasons why your questions stood out to me is because i would always ask them the questions that no one else would ask them um, and they were never the same questions. So tell me what inspired you to write this book. Those boring questions. That, like none of boring. that stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's how I figured out. Because I love watching like, okay, <laughs> celebrity culture. I love watching celebrity interviews. And I was like, I'm <laughs> sick of these interviews asking the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I know press days and press tours are like killer to people. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'm yeah. going to ask for fun stuff. Yeah. And, and that's how like I was on... The, like I was doing book interviews and like working with like I used to work or write for quirk book, books or whatever right and so as my job as doing PR I wanted to give them space to be them and not a performing piece of commodity nice I don't know that's super cool all right, but another success story about yourself and super cool is that you were considered a success story by the federal government as a part of the Entrepreneurs mm-hmm. with Disabilities program. Yes. Which is awesome. So I'm here to ask the vain questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did you get any awards with that? No, it's not something that you get an award. It's showcasing me and my business as being awesome. Which is weird because of all. So I'm gonna I'm gonna back up. I'm gonna kind of answer all your questions in like one, one. Go. Um, so so the federal government, Canada government, has a program as part of their economic development ministry um, to help people with disabilities, those of us who are disabled, for those of us who prefer identity first language, um, with all sorts of different supports to be able to start their own businesses because the federal government recognizes that those of us who are disabled cannot work a regular nine to five job, need to work at flexible schedules, have skills that are not necessarily best suited for work environment, but that does not mean we cannot work, right? We just need to have creative solutions for our lives. Um, and so they created this program that involved, that has lots of things that has like teaching about how to do a business plan, how to run a business, how to do bookkeeping. There's all that aspect. And I already knew all that stuff. Plus they also offer low interest, um, loans with flexible payment schedules and all that other stuff. So like if you're a seasonal worker and your work only six months of the year, then you only make your loan payments six months of the year and there's no penalties. And you can, so it's this whole program to help 
those of us with entrepreneurial spirit <laughs> to be able to create our own businesses how we want. Um, and so like I had my made my business plan and they gave me a loan and they're like, wow, you did great things with your business. We want to show you as a success story for what you were able to do with our program. So because the big um, C is still happening, um, eventually they're going to be coming and watch like doing a documentary of me and my work to do like a little like featurette, like just a little three minutes, like, nothing lavish just to be like, hey, look at this is what our funding can do. This is what you could do too. Um, but what they've done so far is they have, they wrote up like a little like, um, not author bio. It's a spotlight, like a spotlight feature story about me that they have on different government websites. And like, look at this person and what they've done and what they're able to, to accomplish. And hey, maybe you would like to accomplish that with them too. Nice. <laughs> okay. So that's awesome. You've been recognized by the government. Um, the next mm -hmm. section is not as nice, but it's still kind of like a cool story. So yeah, uh, content warning people for things coming up. We're about yes. to dive into conversion therapy, which, you know, I'll make another like warning at the beginning of the episode and edit that in. So mm -hmm. you yeah. should have heard this twice by now. But anyway, so you're <laughs> a conversion therapy survivor. Yes. And the thing about conversion therapy is a lot of people think that it happens in religious settings. When the reality is the majority of religious or of, of conversion therapy happens in medical settings. And now my, now, okay, now my camera's coming. What the, anyways, I'm going to ignore whatever crazy thing is happening here. Um, I did not do that. My computer's being a little bit nutty cuckoo. So let me go to my front Well, to fill this time, I'm just going to plug in another commercial. No, I'm kidding. I'm not. All right. But, you know what? We'll just go back to silence. Now. Sorry, I had to add you back to the like the main stream. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah I, I had you. to I had to reboot because all of a sudden everything just like stopped. Everything like my yeah. So I had to refresh my screen. No worries. Um, so yeah. So as I was saying before, technology decided to be a bit of a jerk. Um, was the majority of conversion therapy happens in medical settings, regardless of what flavor of queer you are, um, and it can look right from like in therapeutic settings to um, medical, like other medical settings, like um, the, with those of us who are trans, the most, it starts with being denied um, gender affirming care. Um, and then you get referred into the psychiatric system where they try and convince you that um, you're not actually trans, you're just broken and you need therapy to overcome your damage and be happy with who you are. And then once you're happy with who you are, all your gender feelings are gonna go away and you're gonna be happy. And um, so I did not have a good background growing up. Part of it's because I was a queer kid. 
and um, I was in foster. I originally was put in foster care yes. and um, being a problem child. And I wasn't a problem child. I was a great child, but I came from such a bad background that I was considered high risk just because of my circumstances. So I was put in foster care into a special home for high risk kids. And part of my condition of foster care was to have therapy. And in that therapy, body image and why do you want to kill yourself and all that stuff comes up. I know we, I know we did. I know we did the, the warning. <laughs> I'm going to give another one. So it came up. I was like 16 at the time. And I was new. I was trans. I didn't have the word because trans kids didn't exist back then. Like this is in the 90s. Okay. But I, I mean, we, we, we already, we always knew I was a boy. My sister would try and sell pictures of me. Like, there's a picture. You know when the, all of us kids <laughs> have a picture of us in the tub when we're little, right? We all have that picture of our two-year-olds. Well, my sister would be like, hey, my sibling was born a boy, but my parents decided to make them a girl with surgery. But do you want to see a picture of them before they were made a girl in the bathtub. She would sell this picture. It's really horrible, but this is how our brains, like our brains came up that I was born intersex and my parents made me a girl when I should have been a boy. And my sister tried to like sell images of me as a, as a catfishing people to give her 25 cents. But we had made up stories. We knew I was a boy. We knew, I mean, we knew, but I divulged in therapy and this is DSM four would have just been coming out. And it was, it was like in it and I'll get to this. I'll get to this afterwards because it's part yeah. of the story. Anyways, it came, it came into therapy that I felt like I should have been born a boy and I am uncomfortable in my skin, but it also came up that I was also abused all three types, mostly physically and sexually. And so my therapist is like, oh, no, honey, you're not a boy. You're just confused. And I'm going to give you this book um, that has actually been linked to um, causing fake memories of sexual abuse, um, Courage to Heal. You just need to work through the Courage to Heal and be reconnected with your body. And we're going to work on your body issues. And you just need to try really, really hard to be happy to be a girl. And then this diagnosis was stuck onto me and it was given to my doctor and all through my life. It was like, no, honey, you are just really failing at being a girl. You just need to try harder. You need to work through your internalized misogyny. And so I would do things like become hyper feminine. And like I did every, me being a good autistic and loving homework, did every assignment that they gave me to be happy with a girl. And the more I failed, because I never failed. I was a straight eight student. I, I am a malicious compliance person. Um, I did it. And the more I did it, the worse I felt. And I'm like, how, how, why isn't this working? I'm doing all the steps. Then I would become more suicidal, which would just ingrain them to feeling you just really, really hate yourself. And it would just snowball and snowball and snowball and snowball. And then I decided I'm going to take psychology university and I'm going to become a therapist because I have lots of mental illness in my family and I need to, I don't understand people as an autistic and I need to understand people and psychology is how you understand people. So <laughs> I took psychology 
<laughs> yes, allegedly. Allegedly. So I took psychology because I needed to understand people. And then in psychology, it was just reinforced that, yes, trans women exist, but trans men are rare. I mean, at the time, the diagnosis for trans men and trans women was a disparity of like 10 trans women for every one trans man. Because we were taught that trans men, except for really, really extreme circumstances where their psychological drama or damage is so extreme, they just need therapy. They're just internalizing misogyny, this and that and the other thing. And you need to do everything in your power to make them happy as their place in the world as women and to accept their lot in life is basically what I was told. So that just reinforced the, oh my God, <laughs> like I'm a horror, like it was horrible. Um, and it took a really long time to, like I came out multiple times. I was met with violence by intimate partners and corrective rape was another thing that I've experienced. And um, so it was just a lot of that. And that is um, denied. Like I was, I was, it was, so I'm going to, I'm 46 and a half. And because of this diagnosis, when I was 16, it was two months before my 46th birthday before they said, okay, you can have testosterone. Wow. So, and all the time, like I beforehand, like, and they always would find excuses why they could not give me any type of gender affirming care. So I had to convince myself that I was happy. Like I, cause a lot of my dysphoria comes from when people misgender me and, and whatever. It's not like I'm neutral about my body. And that's the thing about trans men. Most trans men are neutral about their genitals and in the DSM-5, the criteria was you would have to have dysphoria around your primary sex characteristics. Well, and they would use that as a way to deny the existence of trans men, because that's not how we experience transphobia. Our secondary sex characteristics are what causes trans or to experience um, dysphoria, because that is what causes people to gender us and misgender us, and it's in the act of misgendering that causes the dysphoria. So um, I convinced myself that I was that I was perfectly happy. Because I am. Like, if people gender me correctly, there is no problem. The problem is, I sound a certain way. My voice has finally started. I'm going through a second puberty, which is weird. But. Oh, uh, yes. I've had people come on yeah. and talk all about that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's weird and whatever. But it's just one of those things where, like, I had to. Because that was one of these things that I was, like, I had given up on. Just because the medical system is was perfectly purposely constructed and like the dsm-5 was supposed to correct some of that by dysphoria is like are do you identify with a gender that was not assigned to you at birth and do you experience psychological distress when people misgender you congratulations you have gender dysphoria it's that simple now right and that's why i mean there's not all of a sudden lots of trans kids no we've always existed it's like autism we were better recognizing what autism and what it is to be autistic not that there's suddenly a lot of more autistic people. No, we're just better at recognizing them from an academic standpoint. Society is a whole other issue altogether. Um, so there's no explosion of trans people. We're not coming to, to whatever. We've always been here. We're just now being recognized. But even though it's been 10 years now since DSM-5, like up until a few years ago in Canada, the, most governments would not um, cover treatment. Um, or surgeries for trans men, even though they have been providing them for trans women since the 80s. So there's all, no Archer, 
So there's all this institutional stuff that's still catching up to this years and years and years of intentionally going about to um, make sure that trans men don't exist and to keep us in our places, women in quotes. So, yeah. So I was able to use my experiences, this part of my advocacy, to convince lawmakers because the original conversion therapy bill would not have covered trans people in a therapeutical in a therapeutic session. They, they, it was just geared towards conversion therapy in um, in religious settings because they didn't even they didn't even bother to talk to a single trans person. And it's not even just trans people, it is also gay people that I'm experiencing that more often in medical places than in, like, there's still lots of doctors who want to, like, do electrical shock therapy and stuff on, on gay people. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, just a, there was just a study that came out um, that, that, like, 60% of conversion therapy across sexuality and gender expressions is in medical settings. Um, and so I was able to use my story of being like, Hey, and it wasn't, it was the government paid for my conversion therapy. Like that's, uh, you all. And so I was able to use my story to make sure that the, when it was reintroduced, um, that trans people were covered and that, um, you cannot consent to it in a medical setting because of how it's disguised as, well, you need trauma therapy. Well, of course I'm going to consent to trauma therapy, but so your consent, you're not giving informed consent, right? And so it was to make sure that it cannot happen in any setting, medical or religious, because no, we're going to affirm people. We're not going to deny their existence or try and gaslight them into thinking that they're something that they're not. Nice. Um, thank you for being so open and sharing all that. Like, that's a lot. And if you out there in the world, listeners, uh, are feeling things there are resources on the shape of a star podcast.com um they should be international the resources i'm pretty mm-hmm. sure yeah the resources are international that i we found we as in me and ryan garnowski helped me make the mm-hmm. website but yeah also if you have any questions for jewels or me for me to ask jewels reach out on instagram mm-hmm. tiktok like wherever at the shape of a star podcast Twitter, we're just at the shape of a star because podcast couldn't fit. And we have an email just at the shape of a star podcast at gmail.com. Like more than willing to pass on questions. And if we get enough, if we get all the stuff, Jules, just I'll just drag it back on. We see yeah. each other every Wednesday. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Happy to I'm happy to answer questions. I mean, there's still work to do. I'm still working now. Um, because the federal government in Canada makes the laws and it's up to provinces to enforce them. So now oh. Canada, conversion therapy is banned in Canada, but now the provinces need to make um, legislation of how um, the laws will be enforced and like what it looks like. And so now I'm working with um, the BC government to enact legislation to make sure like this is to give avenues for people to complain if they have, if their doctor tries to convince them that they're not trans and just needs to work through their trauma and all that other stuff. So there's still, it's not, but it's, it's criminal now, at least like that part is done and it's criminal across Canada because of how our laws work. Woo. All right. So that was a heavy topic. So we're going to pivot to like a lighter topic for those who are listening. Um, Yeah. So this is something I also almost missed in your extensive bio notes that you gave me but um you're a trained dancer what 
Yeah, so... So, I... yeah, let's dive into all of that. Sorry, he didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, which which no. genres are you trained in? I was trained in hip-hop, jazz, and lyrical. Nice. Uh, when did lyrical you is now called contemporary. Is and it, though? Again. Like, I hear both, and it's super confusing. Contemporary is born out of lyrical, and there's so much over lay between lyrical and contemporary and lyrical almost is not taught anymore in favor of contemporary and lyrical is more like if ballet and jazz had a baby <laughs> then yeah. um and contemporary is like ball this is not as jazzy as lyrical is lyrical has more jazz contemporary is more on the ballet side but they're still close enough in that between jazz and ballet that you could easily move between lyrical and contemporary, whereas making a leap from jazz to ballet is completely different languages. There's more overlap in language between lyrical and contemporary than there is between jazz and ballet. Oh, yes. I I just yeah. know a lot of dance competition <laughs> categories, and I'm like, a contemporary is like the edgy lyricals, how other people say yeah. it, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good way of doing it. So, yeah, I'm... Started when I was a kid and danced up until mid-20s when disability made it no longer possible. Yeah, no, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. I can't I'd still be dancing. I mean, I still dance at home. It's part of my joyful movement thing, but I don't, I'm no longer dancing 20 hours a week. Ooh, that would wreck havoc on anyone's body. Um, <laughs> but okay, what was your specialty in dance? Since you already said your genres, um, hip hop was my favorite out of all of them. Hip hop. So one of my stimming is music. Like I use music to stim, and hip, the the beat in hip hop, especially a four on the floor, four on the floor, and house, and just you, you're. It's more, you get to swim more in the music with hip-hop, which kind of seems counterintuitive, but hip-hop is more musical than, at least to me and the way I feel music and experience music. Um, hip-hop is, I like jazz. Lyrical was not always, but I think now, I mean, when I was dancing, I was, people were still perceiving me as a woman. And so I would have to dance in feminine ways in lyrical where in hip hop, I got to be masculine. And so that could maybe today and being like completely 100% out, I would feel differently about lyrical being able to dance in masculine roles as opposed to having to dance femininely. You know, that is such a good point though, what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, like, and that's probably it. Like I, I'm that I like I haven't talked about this with anybody in a long time. So yeah, hip hop was because I got to be masculine, but now it would probably be different because I love lyrical. Like when I watch So You Think and Dance and whatever. Oh my god, there's nothing like a a good contemporary number to literally rip the air out of my chest and cause me to ugly cry as like I <laughs> sobbing, ugly crying. What the hell, Travis? Why did you just do to me, you asshole? Type of just wrecked. Absolute dance and music wreck me. Absolutely wreck me. Um, and so, if I was able to dance authentically, I think I would now today prefer lyrical over hip hop. Even though there are some hip hop numbers that lyrical hip hop numbers that do take me away. 
No, yeah, it's a good dance. It's a good dance. Okay, yeah. So, if you had to pick, um, were you a turner, a leaper, or a tricker? Um, I was more on the ground, like in the pocket, which is none of those things. Like just like get in the pocket, get into the ground. I liked it to be grounded down lower. Um, (laughs) I can do turns and leaps and tricks, but having, um, there's a, there's a word for it that I can think of right now where you don't have a good sense of where your body is in relation to everything in space. I can move rhythmically. I could dance. But I'm constantly running into doorways and walls and stuff because I misjudge where my body is in the space. So doing le- leaps and turns and tricks and stuff always was a recipe for I'm going to hurt myself and I'm going to have bruises. So I'm I'm like, I'm going to do the movements and I'm going to move in ways that you did not understand because I am one with the music. But, I, but yeah, down on the ground and like actually in the music. I, I swim in the music. I'm not dancing with it. I become part of it. No, I, I love floor work. I love level changes. Yeah. And I was a leaper. I, I'm not the best turner. <laughs> and I was like, I'm scared of being upside down. I feel like, I don't feel like that's like a mental yeah. thing. I think it's like a physical thing. That, so oh, it is. Heights. Like, well, I don't think I'm scared of heights, but I just react I am. No, here's, here, here's, this is the real thing I'm going to tell you. People ask, I'm not afraid of heights. Because I fall down from a big height, like over so many meters. I'm going to fall down. I'm going to die. We're all going to die anyways. No big deal. You pick me up and I'm only a couple meters, six feet off the ground. I'm freaking out because you drop me. I'm going to shatter my arm and be hurt. Like that's the, that's the thing. Like I don't, I'm not afraid of dying. I am afraid of shattering my arm because I did that once before and it's not fun. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, my thing is that I just don't think I have a fear and then I act like I don't. And then my body is like (laughs) acting like I'm scared, even though I don't feel it. And I'm like, you know, (laughs) okay, I guess I'm scared. I just am lucky enough not to feel it. But no, so I was a leaper. Also, I'm really good at traveling. Like I can clear a distance. Yes. Yeah, I can try. Yeah, I like I like I like things. I like levels and I like playing levels. And so I mean, I can leap tricks. I'm not really so great. I'm it's the whole fear of breaking my arm doing a backflip or whatever, like doing the gymnastic stuff. Nope. I'm um, nope. Uh, my body nopes out of that before I can even start to do it. <laughs> and yep. that's recipe for disaster (laughs) would you say you're more technical or artistic i am technical until i know the rules and then i'm artistic Uh, are you left-footed or right-footed left are you a left turner or a right turner left me too i feel like it's so hard to find other left turners i'm ambidextrous not by choice um, I was born left-handed, but I grew up in the age where if you were left-handed, you were forced to be right-handed. Yeah. So I I play sports left-handed. I dance left-handed. I eat left-handed. I open doors left-handed. The only thing that I'm really right-handed is writing because that's how I was taught to write. And so I'm I'm like ambidextrous in that way where I am predominantly left-handed, except for when it comes to writing. No, that's super cool. Uh, I guess you lefty to brush teeth? I switch. Okay. I switch brush my hair. If I'm doing, if I, yeah, so I switch back and forth. Tasks that require, like, to do both sides of your body, I switch halfway through. See? Talent. Talent. (laughs) 
No, I asked that because my sister... Actually, a lot of people in my family are lefties. And they... Well, one, it's actually very nice for them. Because mm-hmm. they're like, oh, okay, how we adjust in our lives. Because, you know, <laughs> the world is not made for lefties, sadly. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. No. And, I don't know, they just teach each other tricks and stuff. And so I learned, like, brushing your teeth is another thing. Like, oh, which... That's another question people ask mm-hmm. each other. Like, okay, yeah. But... <laughs> um. No, but I'm actually a righty on everything, but I'm a lefty in turns, and I don't get it. That is that is weird. That's very interesting. Right. Like, I'm so much better on my... I don't know. It just feels more natural to, like, turn mm-hmm. left than anything else. Yeah. Okay, so how do you think dance has affected your life? It gave me an escape. So here's the thing. I don't listen to music. I experience music. And... Music is like, I have to have it on almost all the time. And when the perfect song comes in, like the whole, you know, in romance movies and like the cold cliche, the perfect person walks in the room. And this is the thing I don't understand when it comes to other people. And like everything just disappears and it's you and the person and there's like the birds are singing and the flowers are tripping or whatever, whatever the whole like, whoa, that's me and music, right? Is like the perfect song comes in and I swim in it and I... And my heart rate drops down to 55 beats a minute. Or sometimes it will match the beat of the music. Like, I was going to say, like, it drops, it doesn't match? <laughs> so, sometimes it does. It all depends on the song, right? And I, I, every single molecule in my body starts to vibrate. And I'm just, I'm one of the, and it, it's, it's, it's really weird, those of us who are autistic, is a lot of us are great dancers and we're the biggest cluts in real life because we like we can move our bodies because of the way we experience move music. It's like when you're watching those dance shows, it's always one of those things where one of the biggest critiques is like you need to be more with the music, your musicality, right? Autistics and neurodiverse people in general, we we feel music differently and we experience music differently and our musicality is like bang on. Like we can feel rhythms like the pattern and repetition and all the other, like it, we just feel it on the way that neurotypical people don't. Um, and it just allows me to just the whole stress relief of movement and being able to get lost in music and move to the music. And yeah, I just, I just, it's an escape and it's a stress relief. And I, I, I disappear from, like, I'm in my body, but I'm not of this world. Yeah. No, that's exactly how it feels. Yeah. Um, yeah. What skills would you say you've learned from dance, other than the actual physical part? Um, I don't know. And I've had this question for a while, and I still do not know. I mean... Oh. And this is, I was thinking about this just the other day. I was also a theater kid. Surprise! Um, obviously. I mean, but I was thinking, as I was writing the other, so I have this process when I'm writing. I get down, and this is just how I, how I, I see the world, especially because I can't do faces and whatever. Oh, hold up. Are we and, about to get into the third cue? Yes. <laughs> <If> queer, <laughs> well, no, 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 no. This is the, I'm talking about fiction here. So this is my fiction writing. And I just realized this the other day when I was trying to fill in a scene with all that fill in stuff that you're supposed to do. And so it allows what music does, because you have to, every single movement is broken down to a beat. 
in music, literally. And same yep. with when you're staging on a scene. You have to do the backstory, at least with how I was taught for staging. Create a backstory for your character. You have some some scenes are so intricate where it's like, okay, now when you're saying this, you need to move your head. You need to, like, every single moment, you're hyper aware of how your body is moving through space through literally beats in time in theater, in music. And so being able to apply that. So when I'm writing, like I was writing a, a scene the other day where two best friends are under the stars and they're talking. And at first it was just the dialogue going back and forth. And you can't have just dialogue on a scene. But that's where the scene starts, is they're on the dialogue. And then I had to think about, I mean, it's what they call like the the movement between the, the movements, right? The, the filling in that space by the full extension of your arm and and you're not just like moving to go for the next beat, like going from a pirouette to say a pique. You're not just, but that 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 happens in between the pirouette to the pique. That little that adds your little flavor. And so it's like, okay, so what does that look like? Okay, and then I start to choreograph the scene like I'm a dancer. And so it's like, okay, so they said that, and then I would turn my head to overlook at them. And so I would add that. And so then I choreograph the scene in my writing. Once I know what the music is, which is the lyric or the, the spoken words, the dialogue, then I paint it in with the movement, which is the dance or staging um, if I was in a play. So yeah, it's helped me with my writing. Nice. No, I actually, fun fact, people, I've never talked about this before, but when I'm writing, like, every, depending on who I'm writing for, I need to switch the music I'm listening to, and it's, like, such a physical experience. I got to figure out the mm. body language, and that's how I get in their head. See, I don't do body language. I can't read body language. I'm completely, if it wasn't for the emotions, the source, the source. So there's one scene where the best friend says to the character who's autistic, not yet diagnosed autistic in, in the books that I'm working on right now is like, I had to, I, I, it's written in first person present. So I cannot like, I, it's only what's in the character's head. So I'm like, okay, so I know that I want the best friend to be concerned, but I literally do not know what concerned looks like. So I have to pull out my emotional thesaurus and be like, what does concerned look like? So I am, so I can say what the person is because I have face blindness. I also cannot see pictures inside my head. Like I have all these things that make writing very, very difficult. And thank God for the emotion thesaurus. And so um, I go through the emotion thesaurus and like, well, sometimes they will squint their eyes together. So, okay. So what I did instead of saying, and he, and he froed his brow, instead of writing that, I have Gordy saying, what he says, or Miles, sorry, he's the character. And then the lead character um, is like listening to what Gordy or Miles is saying and says, I studied the crease between his eyebrows. And so instead of doing his forehead and his brow, it's the autistic person studying the crease between the eyebrows because that's what I as an autistic person would do. Is like, why are they creasing their eyebrows? That's really weird. Like, and become so, and trying to figure out what the crap is going on with her face because I don't know what that means. But the reader will know what that means because the readers know that people's eyes fro. Me as an autistic person don't do that and that fro distracts me. And so the next line is the best friend saying earth to Vern to snap me out of fixing on the on the crease between their eyebrows. Like what what is that doing there? So that's how and so that's a whole that's part of the filling in. And so I grabbed the emotions thesaurus. I was like, what do people actually do? Because I don't know. People can be yelling at me and I won't know that they're angry. 
because and I'm just I'm I'm so distracted by what's going on in their face and trying to figure it out. Unless you say I'm angry with you, I will not know. That is how that is how autistic I am when it comes to social cues. <laughs> nah, I get it. But also, <laughs> yeah. okay. Do you think that you move differently than others due to having such yes. extensive dance training? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I move differently. Not only that, but also being like autistic people just move differently. Same with people with ADHD. We tend to walk on our toes more. Um, but I I have a really bad <laughs> going shopping sometimes. It's a little bit different now that I have to use a wheelchair when I leave the house. Uh, but I still, I'd like a little chair dance. Like I can't help. If there's any type of rhythm, like noise that has any type of repetitive, repetitious sound. I mean, it does, but I'm also, I'm very quiet and light on my feet. <laughs> I'm laughing. Oh my God. One of my favorite memes on TikTok is scaring people. Either whether it's a wow on the speaker and their person's throwing the food up in the air, or there's this whole meme where it's like partners and you just like all of a sudden act like something's wrong. Like you freak out and then your partner starts freaking out beside them. Um, I startles. I love startles. I like being startled. Um, and the problem though is I'm very, very quiet. And so I will be like walking and I think I'm being thunderous because I hear every single noise. Like it's like a thousand times louder than it is. And so I'm just walking what I think is like a normal person and I'll walk into another room and I will just blurt out a question and my partner will yell. <laughs> Don't scare me. I'm like, I'm not scary. Like, I'm just here. Like, how did you not hear me coming? Like, I'm, a, but I'm very quiet. Like, and it's just the whole having to jump and land without being whole, being, being heard, right? I'm a cat. <laughs> Except for cats can be thump, thump, thump down the hall. I'm a cat who's not thumping down the hall. <laughs> who's coming up on their prey, but not, not, not intentionally. It's just how I've learned to move in the world. Nice. Here are some results from the web. No, Google, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're at the last question, which I'm excited mm -hmm. for. So this episode is going to come out to the public world in May 2023. Again, today is July 5th, 2022. But so a bunch of months away. So you can freely talk about your big debut now, as comfortable mm -hmm. as you feel. Tell us all about yeah. Crip Up the Kitchen, realistic tips, tricks, and recipes for the disabled kitchen, which is due to be published by Touchwood Edition. Yeah, so by the time this comes out, it should be available for people to buy wherever you buy books. Hopefully. I'm going to put a, I'm going to put an asterisk, a star, eight, whatever. What is, yes, it is shift eight. Because yeah, shift supply eight. chain issues are still a thing. Uh, there could be printing delays and whatever, so it might be. But the, the it is on track on our end to be published in april of 2023 so um oh woo that will be right after yes right before yes this. here oh my gosh so i just came back from two weeks of holiday and that's a holiday in canadian speak means a vacation it does not mean like the fourth of july but going on holiday means i had a staycation i didn't go on holiday um um hold let me so but right before i left my my editor 
gave me the catalog copy for my book for me to approve. And the catalog copy, for those who do not know, um, like six months before a publishing season in bigger houses, it's like there's a spring, fall, summer, winter catalog that has all the books that are coming out in that period. My publisher only does the spring and fall um, releases. So the, the fall, the spring catalog is coming out at the end of summer for everything that's coming out for spring releases. And before I left, and it was also how I found out that I got to keep the title of my book, because that's also very rare. Uh, before I, um, I was, I screamed. I screamed in the best way possible, and I might scream when I read this. I'm going to read the catalog copy for my book. This is what they're using to, this is what they came up with to market my book. And then we can talk about it afterwards if you have questions. When Jules Sherrod discovered the Instapot multi-cooker, he was thrilled and incensed. How had no one told him what a game changer this one, or how would no one, how had no one told him what a game changer this could be for any home cook, but in particular, those with disabilities and chronic illness. And so the experimenting and the evangelizing began. The kitchen is the most ablest room in the house and very few cookbooks address this. With 50 recipes that make use of three key tools, the electric pressure cooker, air fryer, and bread machine, Jules has set out to correct the gap. The book includes pantry prep, meal planning, shopping guides, kitchen organization plans, and tips for cooking safely when disabled, all taking into account varying physical abilities and energy levels. Organized from the least to greatest effort, or from one to all your spoons for spoonies, beginning with spice blends and bases, Jules presents thorough, tested, inclusive recipes for making favorites like butter chicken, Jules's effing good chili, Thai winter squash soup, roast dinners, matzo balls, pho, samosas, borscht, shortbread, lemon pound cake, and many more. Jules also provides a step-by-step -step guide to safe canning and a template for prepping your freezer and pantry for post-surgery. With rich accompanying photography and food histories, complete nutritional information, and methods developed specifically for the disabled and neurodivergent cook, Crip Up the Kitchen is at once inviting, comprehensive, and accessible. If you've craved the economy and satisfaction of cooking at home, but been turned off by the ablest approach of most cookbooks, this one's for you. Is my book. It's the first half is like all things to buy, how to do meal planning, instead of like the bull crap week in advance because you're asking for food waste, how to do it a month in advance and only have to cook eight times a month. Boom, you're done. Um, so it's all, the first half is all like how to's for everything you need, how to organize your kitchen, especially if you are, have um, issues with things like object permanence or whatever, so that you are not wasting 45 minutes trying to find everything you need to cook. And so that you can, you're using your energy, your limited energy in the best way possible. And then it gets into the recipes and every single recipe teaches a specific skill so that you can take everything in the book and apply it to any other recipe that is um, culturally appropriate for you so that you can cook foods that are for your soul and feed you in culturally appropriate ways well disabled nice look at that oh, oh. <laughs> so yeah i'm so proud of this i'm so proud of this i mean oh my god like because the kid it's i i love food 
And I used to spend, like, in the introduction, I mean, I grew up, I was, um, before I was put into foster care, um, I was adopted into a Punjabi Sikh. And Sikh is the proper way of pronouncing Sikh, for those who practice Sikhi. Um, so I was um, a, a Punjabi household, like, took me in as one of their own while I was waiting to be placed in care. And so I learned how to cook Punjabi food. And Punjabi food for me is like home cooking. That's food of love. Um, because that is like, that's how, when the first, yeah, it's, it's love. They're, I would probably not be alive today if it was not for this Punjabi family. And that's just Sikhi in general. You help out like you rising boats type philosophies. Um, rising tideless all boats. Um, and so it would be nothing for me to spend five, six hours cooking. My friends would come over. I mean, you come to my house, you're a guest, you relax, you do not cook, you do not do nothing. I, I prepare for you and tell you stories. And then, um, multiple types of disabilities took that away from me and I couldn't cook anymore and cooking was torturous. And then I found these tools and the thing is like most cookbooks out there are written by abled people who have no idea. Like, none. Like, you want me to spend how many hours chopping vegetables that I may not have the energy to cook and eat later on in the week? Like, you must be daft. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's being, and it was really weird because with nonfiction, you you um, sell it on proposal. And a lot of the ways that it works is that the publisher, the acquiring editor would be like, you know, we like, we like this part of the book, but we don't like this part of the book. And this is what we would like you to write instead. I mean, like, nonfiction, by and large, is usually very, very collaborative. And when I got the call from my publisher, and this is how I knew it was the publisher that I was going with, like, not, it wasn't so much that they're like, no, you want your, your what you put in your proposal, 100% is what we want your book to be. You're the expert. We're not, we're not changing anything. But then, and like, when I asked them the question, like, well, why, like, why, why do you want my book? Like, what's your vision for my book, right? You know, that question you're supposed to ask your agent when you're, but you ask your publisher when you're negotiating. And they said that when we read it, we're now looking for funding to make a Braille version of your cookbook. That is our dream for your cookbook. And like, you want this in Braille? Nobody thinks about the blind people when it comes to, um, and that's how I knew it was the publisher. Anyways, I'm just so, I... I gave myself a Nobel Prize in, in grade four during your report because I know how smart I am, right? And it's like really, really weird, quirky, like quirky things that we do as kids. But even then, like I got to convince a publisher to throw out their whole entire style guide. And like, no, like this is how the recipes need to be written for, for, ADH and dyslexic and autistic people. Otherwise they're, they're going to like literally put on the water and then go and find something. And they're going to forget the water's on and their kitchen's going to burn down. Like, <laughs> and I am for some bizarre reason, I get to reinvent how cookbooks are written. And it may only be this one book that it happens in, but this one book is going to exist. Somebody paid me to, to completely be like, screw you traditional cookbooks. This is how it needs to be done. So as many people as possible can access cooking. Because um, not only food insecurity isn't only about um, access to ingredients. Food insecurity also is 
not having access to cooking. And a lot of university, college, and disabled people are food insecure, not because they can't afford the food, but because they don't know how to cook. Or they have lost the ability to cook. And I get to help alleviate food insecurity for a bunch of people. So I'm just... And somebody somebody agreed to let me do it, which is a crime. <laughs> like, I still don't believe this happened. Like, it's... My, my book is currently in design, and I still don't believe it's real. Like, it's... No. <laughs> Did you record your QQQ yet? No, we're doing that in the spring. Oh, once, okay. You're going to do it closer. Yeah. 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 Once Sarah, Sarah likes to do it like right around release. And that's how Sarah operates. And so I'm perfectly happy doing it according to their schedule. Oh, yeah. No, I get that. Yeah. I am not. I'm like, no, we're going to get this out of the way. We're going to get it scheduled. And it's going to be there because if I die, it's out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, and I got to, it was it's just, yeah, it's it's weird. It's weird, because I was supposed to be Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, like, for, for real. I sent one of my report cards in grade four, my teacher just thought it was appropriate to tell the kid who follows the rules maliciously that I was going to be Prime Minister one day. And having a narcissist parent, if I was not doing everything to live up to that expectation, I was a failure. <laughs> Which has put a lot of pressure on me. Being twice exceptional is not a fun, it's not a fun thing. And I mean, I wrote a blog post recently on my disabledkitchenandgarden.ca website about the challenges of being autistic and living with complex post-traumatic stress has on the publishing journey. And part of it is feeling like I'm gonna, they're gonna, I, I broke the law because my publishing journey is not what to tell you it's going to be like my book i i pitched it in september i had a signed contract in november it's going to be out in a couple months right that's not how cookbooks are like five years if you're lucky six years from kind of like and it's like i'm not exceptional right like that and this is what the whole shape of the story is like i it was I'm not going to use the word that I want to use, even though it's accurate because it's triggering. It was so reinforced into me that there is nothing at all exceptional or special about me. And that if I was to do anything, like give myself any type of props for anything I accomplished, I was met with, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And so there's still that voice, right? Like I've, I've had years of trauma therapy. I am an advocate for mental health, for, for all that other stuff. And I would tell anybody that voice is lying to you. And I tell myself that voice is lying to you, but it's still there, right? Because conditioning, you're, you're, it's still there. And so there's still that part of you, like, who do you think you are thinking that you, the nerve of you to say that you're going to rewrite how cookbooks are written. You're going to fundamentally change how cookbooks work. Who do you think you are? And it's happening. And I don't think it's ever going to be real. I think that's the, maybe, maybe once I get my author's copies or the, the, I get the proofs, the uncorrected proofs in September, maybe then it will be real, but it's still, it's, it's a big, it's a culmination of so much of my work of my advocacy work is now like, mass out there for a whole entire world to be able to be seen. And there's one of the things that I'm 
really proud of is not only the the food histories that decolonize food and teach people the histories and why as white people we get to enjoy these foods and um be like it's, it's appreciates the food instead of appropriates it but i like there's 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 one time that i get to say in it and i'm really surprised they kept it in like there's one part if any like it's about ableism and it's like if anybody tells you any different i'm here to tell you that that's bullshit right like just one swear in the whole book and a lot of people are like who cares there's swears in books all the time well you don't expect to swear in a cookbook and the fact that I got to call ableism bullshit, right? And my publisher is like, yes, like cheering me on as I'm calling ableism bullshit. Um, especially when a lot of people um, are, are getting in trouble or feeling pressure for championing social justice issues, for championing marginalized people. The fact that I have a publisher who is 100% behind me and being, yes, let's let's take down, let's do what we can do to decolonize cooking, to make it less white, to, to do what we can to, like, make cooking less ableist and support you as a queer person and you having full say over what we can, like, there's no pressure for me to promote things because they know I get a lot of hate and so like they're doing everything they can to protect me and that's also very rare from a publisher because there's as you know authors are expected to do so much in the way of self-promotion without any without any support from their publishers like not even i'm not even talking about financially i'm talking about publishers expect marginalized authors to put themselves at physical risk of harm to sell the books without once thinking at all what type of harm like threats stalkers all that stuff right and the fact that i have a publisher that is like you know what if if you're not comfortable doing this if you're worried about your safety we will not do it just say the word right like that's such a amazing amazing i don't believe it's real like i danny they're gonna arrest me because this can't this is not this is not the story right that's not the story <laughs> No, and I'm just thinking too, like, even though that you are not being pressured yet, you have this episode, you mm -hmm. got Sarah's QQQ. I got, yeah, I got Sarah's, I got QQQ. I have, like, I know I'm going to be on the CBC, lots of different CBC podcasts. I'm going to be on Global News. And, like, I already know I have a lot of press coming up. And it's kind of, it's weird for me. And this, because, like, I've interviewed people, and I'm used to being on, like, the questions, doing the interviews, doing yeah. whatever. And I've been interviewed for, like, I'm the Canadian Star Trek expert. And it's, I've, I've had, I've been, so Bell Media owns the Star Trek rights, the broadcast rights for Star Trek in Canada. And so when there's new episode or new series of star trek i'm the one who goes they call up to like hey jules come on the radio and talk about star trek yeah. to your canadian audience right so i'm that person and so i'm really used to like that but that's performative right like i can put on a hat i can step into a role and be jules the star trek person i can step in the role and talk to the media about conversion therapy and be jules the conversion therapy survivor I mean, yeah. those are more, there's a performance aspect to it. And I'm, a, I mean, if there's anything that you people know about neurodivergent um, people is that we're great at masking and we are great performers when we need to be. Um, 
this cookbook is different because it is, uh, it's so personal. I mean, there's some, there's some very difficult topics that are tackled in it. Um, in a way, I mean, we still like the during, <clears throat> during the last two years of the pandemic, how many times have disabled people have been told if, if you're afraid, stay at home. I mean, we're always having to stay at home though. I mean, all of us who are marginalized, like, if you don't like it, stay at home. If you're worried about getting sick and dying, stay at home. Stay at home, stay at home. All these restrictions are because of you. We would rather you be dead, right? Like, that is, and so now I have this book where I'm calling out all that. So that's just putting another target on my back in a really, and then I'm telling my fellow white people things that they don't want to hear about colonialism and food and and the ways that whiteness and white supremacy has screwed up food for a lot of people and me doing what I can do as a white person to decolonize food and give people the tools so that they can reclaim the foods that are like soul food is not just about feeding your emotional soul. People of different genetic backgrounds need specific foods for them to be their healthiest. Like it's in our ingrained, um, like it's one of the reasons why, diabetes is so high among indigenous people is because they're, they don't have starches naturally in indigenous foods and you can't undo millennia of genetic and diets and all of a sudden white people come along and introduce all this stuff that their bodies literally cannot handle. And so yeah. like what tools can I give you to kind of unfuck, excuse my language, but it's appropriate here, unfuck what white people have done to, to people of color, especially black and indigenous people. Um, and Asian people, South Asians, particularly in Canada, because of India and that whole crap there. Um, but everywhere. I mean, you come from Hong Kong, right? So it's the whole, I mean, <laughs> I don't need to tell you about colonialism when, when, um, when you were also, like, you were born in Hong Kong, right? Am I remembering that correctly? Oh, yes. Yes. I had a British passport when I was adopted yeah. and everything. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's, that also, I mean, all that stuff. Uh, so, I'm, I'm, it's going to be interesting to know how white people are going to react <laughs> to, to them all of a sudden having, like, no, no choice but to learn um, how partition, uh, why we have butter chicken because of the partition of, um, of Punjab into, um, Pakistan and and India, and we would not have butter chicken if it was literally. We would not have butter chicken if it was not for partition, and then, and just all these things, and like challenging white people. Like you have this food, and you never once think about why this food made its way to Canada, and how whiteness played a role in these dishes coming to coming to Canada or North America. I have I talk about hash and and the enslavement of black people and indentured Irish servants is why we have hash. As, as a dish um, and all that stuff I mean that's a whole I mean it's, it, it makes me especially the climate right now is not it's not good when it comes to being a marginalized person and I'm white like I have white privilege protecting me as I'm doing this and and so um, but I have like just to have the publisher though being like you know what if you like there's some news outlets that normally they would have their um 
the writers like want to do an interview with but i've already said i'm not gonna do any interviews with these news outlets because they like to um print um transphobic opinion pieces like they're fact and i cannot be in a i just i cannot i don't feel safe doing it so i get to know about of that all right nice all right we do gotta move on to mm-hmm. the next part of the program though um, so next up, everyone, is the rapid fire question portion. Woo woo, mostly because it's never rapid. I might rechange the name. It's gonna be the same crap, but I'm gonna start thinking of a new name because as you've listened, Jules, because you've been listening through the episodes, <laughs> no one does it fast. Mm-hmm. Um all right, so ready? Yep. Oh, and by the way, fun fact. So you've been listening to season one. There's new questions, I know. I When I heard it this morning, when I was listening to your episode, I'm like, no. No, I've been preparing for the... No, anyways, I'm ready. Well, do you want me to ask you the old ones, too? No, no, no. Let's do the challenge. Okay. We can always circle back, because I will say, not all of them are new. Like, question mm-hmm. number one. What are your chosen coping skills? Um, joyful movement. I... Once my workday is done, I turn off work. I do not check my I do not check email outside of work hours. I no longer work past work hours. <laughs> I have I have really clear boundaries between work and personal. And I don't even check like personal emails outside of work hours. Like I have a hard stop to emails every single day. Joyful movement, cooking my dogs, cuddling with my dogs and my cats, and watching Star Trek every day. One episode of Star Trek, at least, every single night before going to bed. And just having going to bed with that comfort and my nervous system being chill. Nice. Uh, next step is Team Edward or Jacob? This is Twilight, right? Yeah. Which one's the wolf, Jacob? Yep. That one. <laughs> Which direction should you cut your sandwich? Diagonal. That's not even a question. Toilet paper goes over sandwiches on a diagonal. What direction should you fold your napkins? In thirds. And then over in half. Wait, how do you do it in thirds? So, like, it's like (laughs) third, third. So you do the left side in one third, the right side in one third, then fold it in half. Kind of like a shirt. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay, um, what gift would you want to get from a fairy? Oh, I don't like gifts. They make me nervous. I legit have panic attacks over gifts. Because if I don't like it, I cannot hide that I don't like it. And I know I will like this gift because I can pick it. Right. (laughs) Uh, Every single piece of Star Trek thing ever made. All right. Oh, you work in advertising for food. Mm-hmm. Left or right Twix? Is Twix a chocolate bar? We call them candy bars down there, right? Twix. I don't yeah, know it's a is. candy bar, but Twix is like a specific one. It's like a wafer that has caramel. Yeah, I know what Twix is, but I don't know what left or right Twix is. Oh, no. we have like... different foods here. No, no, no. It's like okay. in the package. You know, there's two. Oh, I get the left first. Sorry, I did not left. Have you seen the commercials? No, are not you in a team long left time. or right? 
No, we don't have. We have different, a completely different advertising up here in Canada than that makes sense. The humor is different. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, I've never seen. I have not. Yeah, Twix commercials here are like pride things and kids getting beaten up and for being queer and then someone saving them and beating up the bullies. That's what our Twix commercials are. Oh no, ours are like a whole factory, like the left Twix factory and the right Twix factory. And like they don't go down the conveyor belt and they're put into one package and they're supposed to taste different. You got to pick a side. No, oh, wow. No, no. <laughs> That's how but I got left. the question, everyone. <laughs> okay. um, what's a trend that went too far? Mm. I mean, all of them. <laughs> I'm not. It's not even so much that I'm counterculture. I just don't understand. I'm, I'm always looking at things like, I do not understand memes, like being one of them. I feel like the Hello Fellow Kids dude all the time, but I'm not meaning to like pretend to be a kid. I just, um, God, recycling of fashion is something that really bothers me. And every time, oh, oh, neon colors being back. Like, <laughs> 80s fashion. We're in That's 90s. a trend. That's, no, 90s is okay, because 90s was 60s recycled. And you get, like, the cardigans back and, and A-line skirts and more tight-fitting suits and tailored clothes come back in the 90s. The 80s... Yeah, but big, we're pushing in the 90s now. 80s is dying out. But no, I'm like, I mean, I, every time I see like a, anything from the new Barbie movie and they're wearing the neon yellow and pink and orange, that is the 80s. And and the way that like slouch socks and the way that jeans get folded, like all of that, big hair and fair, no. The 80s is a trend that went too far. That's, no, that's my answer. I will fight about leg warmers. <laughs> leg warmers save my calves. Leg warmers are, are timeless. Leg warmers can stay. They're timeless. They still get used all the time. They never disappear. And now you but, know that we have been trained as dancers, everyone. <laughs> yep. And this is like, even like, even like the, the, there's like a sleeve that's almost like a puff sleeve that comes from like prairie clothing that is recycled in the 80s and is back again. Like, there's just the way, it's just, no, 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 the 80s. <laughs> okay, so what's one thing you would eliminate from life? Oh, hate. <laughs> Who would play you in a documentary slash movie about your life? Elliot Page. What genre? And then, I, I have to stop that for a second because... Up until a few months ago, I had no answer for that. But now we have Elliot Page, so. Fellow Canadian. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, oh, what genre would that movie or documentary be about your life? Dramedy. And, but not, like, a drama, and but with, like, with comedic beats, but not like overly comedic, and but not the comedic beats that you need to have in drama. So like dramedy light. I mean, yeah, dramedy. Okay. Um. Oh, if you stick to the status quo, which clique would you be in? Nerds. <laughs> 
nerds, I guess, is the is that still a click thing? So yeah. when we grew up, there was, there was rockers, nerds, shrubs, and these are probably all Canadian things too. And you're like, what? No, I uh, get it. Okay, yeah, nerd. Uh, but yeah. Uh, oh, here's the next one. What click should you have been in in high school? Nerd. <laughs> My brand is pretty strong. Yeah, nerd. There's no, and I would never change it for a million years. Okay, you never know. You also did theater. It could have been the theater kids. <laughs> Theater's nerds. I mean, theater kids are a bunch of nerds as well. <laughs> you can't tell some of them that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> they enthusiastically love theater. They're nerds. <laughs> we are at the last one. If your life was a jukebox musical, oh God. what would be the opening song? <laughs> I want to swear at you right now for this question. I had it. I had it. Quick round, and then you had to ask me a music question. Opening pop culturally song. We're going walking up to the jukebox. It'd be something that gets you up and bouncing. Actually, no, it wouldn't. We're going to start with Muse Madness. Wow, that was a fast answer. <laughs> Compared to lots of other people. Good job. <laughs> Usually I have to coax people into like, okay, let's pick an artist, pick a genre. <laughs> yeah, I was at first U2 because U2 is my all-time favorite band. And then I went to Queen for a minute. But Muse Madness has a... That automatically gets you into a vibe. And so it's just that. To just set the tone. Nice. All right. So you sure you don't want to circle back and answer the ones we didn't go over? We could, but I mean, I had this whole thing. I'm like, what? Like the whole. Lancaster and York. I was like, yeah. so who did I, who was I, who was I going for when I was watching the white queen? Like, cause that's, that's whole... how I learned about all this. <laughs> <laughs> that's literally I was why that question's in there. Cause I just watched the show. Oh, it's so good. And most people outside of Canada and UK don't know it because it is like, it's a UK. Yeah. And Oh, Hold up a quick second. Okay. You can keep explaining your thing, but I've... Okay. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I was really, like, I was just wondering, like, do you, do you have some, like, obsession with the tutors? Like, because there are some Americans who are Anglophiles and are all, like, into British history? Or, or what? Because you're the first American that I know who has ever heard of the white... Okay, so because you're also a huge fan of the White Queen, I was obsessed. Like, I started reading the damn books, and I got the shirt for myself. Oh, that is so great. It's a Chiquita thing. It's a Chiquita thing. You wouldn't understand. And if you don't know who Chiquita of Luxembourg is, people, go figure it out. (laughs) Go watch the White Queen. It's a great historical drama. It's they're they're like all historical dramas. They take some liberties with some things to condense the timeline, but it's still really well done. 
<laughs> yes. Oh my God, you're the first person to actually get where I got it from. The White Queen. Yes. I I did not know that's where you were getting it from, though. So it's, that's just a happy coincidence that when every I'm like, I need to watch that and figure out who was who did I really like because I was so well done that I yeah, it's a good show. Oh, I'm so excited. Oh. I cannot wait to tell my sister that someone <laughs> got it. Because <laughs> even my friends that knew I watched the show and knew where it came from didn't put the pieces together. Really? That's yeah. interesting. Right, I so, Yeah, I heard a lot of people like, is this a Game of Thrones thing? And if it was, I would be like, I have no idea. I could not watch the Game of Thrones because it's gratuitous violence in it. And yeah. I'm okay with violence. I'm not okay with gratuitous violence. And right it's very gratuitous like it's just there to to be there and to be edgy and I'm like nah that's not it that's not it <laughs> all right well because you asked the first question that we didn't go over we're just going to go through the old ones everyone okay. Okay, okay so where do you stand on the oxford comma nope here's the thing we're taught the oxford comma is wrong in canada and that's the whole this is the one the difference between american british or american english and canadian english or even our grammar is different and so for simple lists it doesn't, you wouldn't do like one, two, three, four, you know that they all belong together. It's not necessary. If there's a need for the Oxford comma, because you want to separate it, then you should probably be using a different word like plus, or you should be moving where the thing after the Oxford comma is into the sentence to make it clearer. Okay. That would be the, yeah. <laughs> if I told you to bring a pie to pie day, what kind of pie would you bring? Mm hmm rhubarb strawberry what is an innocent phrase that you have mistakenly or subconsciously weaponized see i know i never understood this question it was based off the fact that i was using a phrase yeah i thought i was just being a bitch <laughs> yeah and that's the whole thing about that is that you i mean Malicious compliance. I mean, I'm always honest, and people think I'm purposely being a jerk when I'm just being honest because I don't have to act. Um, and if I'm weaponizing something, which is really rare, I'm doing it intentionally. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where I'm a really, I don't, I would never hurt anybody intentionally, but sometimes you deserve it. And I stand up to bullies and, and, um, I'm not sorry. So I'm not even going to apologize for it. There's a, 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 one of my favorite YouTubers who's autistic is Paige Leal. And she was saying one time that sometimes I am just an asshole and I know I'm an asshole and I'm not going to apologize for being an asshole because sometimes you're an asshole too. And that's me, right? Like, so I, I mean, I've been, I weaponize things against me. Like, who do you think you are? But, and that's an innocent could be, but yeah, no, I, I can't think of, of anything. Like if I'm weaponizing something, you, you better believe that I probably mean it. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> next up is what's a trend. Oh no, sorry. We yep. already asked that one. If you could rule an established country or territory in this world, where and why? Oh, I don't like this question. Because of colonialism. No one said they could have voted you in. But uh, ruling, it's the word ruling that I'm getting stuck on. Because ruling 
is not democracy. <laughs> ruling is like you're making the rules and you're you're putting them on people. But you um, can be democratically voted to make the rule. No, I'm uncomfortable doing that. I would need committees and making sure everyone's needs were met. Um, I'm going to say the whole entire world. Wow. Okay. I'm scared to answer. So I'm just going to rule the whole world. Okay. Uh, so I can bring in the United Federation of Planets and like bring in the utopia of Star Trek. Like that's, that's, if I have to rule anything, I mean, like I said before, it's either all or nothing. Okay. Um, if you were a pageant contestant or someone with a large platform, what would your philanthropy or cause be? Um, so, I mean, climate change is one that comes up often because everything, housing issues, whatever. But you know what? I would, I would, um, human rights in general, but specifically for um, BIPOC and trans people and queer people. But yeah, that would be, that would be it. That would be it. What avatar nation would you come from? I know nothing about avatar except for elements. And so water. Last one is what's your ideal five minutes of fame? None. <laughs> no, no. Well, that's weird. Again, it's no celebrity culture. So, I mean, ideal five minutes of fame because everybody has a house and they have the food that they need on their table. I've solved food insecurity and housing in one fell swoop. There we go. The utopian overlord, everyone. There yes. you go. Yeah. <laughs> nah. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> There endeth the question portion. Jules, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having where me. Can... This was fun. No, I'm so happy. I got to flip it on you for once. But uh, <laughs> where can people find you if they actually want to get to follow you and keep track of your they, life? They can follow me on Twitter at geeky, like G-E-E-K-Y, Jules. That's J-U-L-E-S, as in Jules Verne. Um, and my business instagram which i don't know why you would want to look at food images all day long but that's at polaris creative food on instagram um but if you were to go to um my twitter at geeky jewels and click on the link in my bio for my link tree which i think is like link tr.ee you know the short link forward slash j sherrod then you can find my social medias and my websites and my cooking website, like Disabled Kitchen and Garden um, and all that other stuff. So everyone check out the show notes. I'm just going to put the link tree there. That way you'll yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way is the link tree. <laughs> link trees are the best. I use it to yeah. push out the show. So yeah. Oh, wait, you see it because that's what I yeah. can post. <laughs> I'm like one of two people that can post links in that chat. And I'm like, and promote me. Thank you. And look, it worked. I got you as a guest. Yes. Yay. Yes. <laughs> All right. So anything last word you want to say before we dip? So one question we didn't quite answer all that much was like, I do, I do like, 
advocacy work and big, huge, unreal, like, un, nobody can go, not everyone can go out and expect to, like, elect the leader of a political party to be the leader, right? Like, uh, I've done some impressive things, and sorry if that sounds like a jerk. Like, humbly, it's, I'm speaking facts. I've done impressive things. Right, period, done. Period. I have done I've impressive done things. I'm going to own that, right, for this moment. But the biggest thing that people can do is to be an ally and not just say like on Twitter, like hashtag activism and whatever. But like if you see casual homophobia or casual transphobia or casual racism or casual bigotry, call that shit out. That is what you can do for your activism and to be an ally and to make your corner of the world just a little bit better is be safe, wear a mask, all that other stuff that we say in the pubbers. Oh, okay. But okay. Yeah. It's uh stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask. Wear a mask. Yeah. 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 Do that stuff because I want you alive and I want you healthy and I don't want you to have long COVID. And like if you can avoid long-term disability, let's do that. Right? Like let's be happy and healthy. But also the world kind of really sucks right now. And I think a lot of people are feeling helpless because they don't know what they can do. And so I'm telling you the thing that you can do if you want to make the world a better place is do not be quiet when you see somebody being a bigot. Stand up for your marginalized people because we're tired and we can't do it anymore. And we really like be an ally. And that's what allyship is. It's not saying I support you. It's actually doing something that, that, supports us and taking the weight off of all the work that we're having to do. So call out that shit is, yeah, that's, that, that's what, yeah. Thank you in advance. <laughs> no cookies though. That's what you just need to do. Period. So yeah. again, Jules, thank you so much for coming on. Everyone else out there, remember, follow the link tree to get in touch with either of us, honestly. And true. If you message Jules, Jules will know how to direct you to me. I'll know how yep. to direct you to Jules. We see each other every Wednesday. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, catch the next orbit satellites. And I guess, yeah, stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask. Uh, bye. I don't remember. Whatever. <laughs> Good enough, people. Bye. Peace out. <laughs>